And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi For Me Radio is live from the bunker. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the program. It is Monday, the beginning of a very, very busy broadcast week. And I'm already tired. My name is Jason Hunt. I am the editor here at SciFiForMe.com. Happy to have you all with us, whether you are here live or in replay. Live chat is open. If you are here Memorex style, you can always leave a comment. The email address, live from the bunker at SciFiForMe.com. Or you can connect with us on social media or the Discord. We are slowly edging toward 2,500 subscribers on YouTube. We're getting there. So, slowly but surely. Give a shout out to people who are listening to us as a podcast. Uh, people, we've got listeners in Russia, Canada, Germany, Poland, Japan, China, India, showing up on the map. Happy to have all of you with us, uh, and do want to invite you to join us during the live video portion of the program, so uh, you can see some of the things what we show you. Because sometimes we have things to show you, like uh, like we do today. We've got some stuff to show you, and uh, in in that uh, in that regard, Christopher Hoffman is here to show you. Welcome, Christopher. How are you, sir? I'm doing fine. How are you, sir? I'm hanging in there. I'm I'm running on four hours of sleep. I'm tired. Oh no! But you know, I'll get through it because we're professionals. It's what we do, right? Oh yes, definitely. Uh, fueled by coffee. Yes, coffee and spite. Ah, that's, there we go. That's what it is. All right. So, uh, how 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 was your weekend? And that my weekend was 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 good. Um, I actually caught the Royal Rumble, and that was fun. Yeah. They had one of uh, they had a surprise uh, for the women's Royal Rumble. Um, they actually um, allowed a. Uh, wrestler from another promotion to be part of the royal rumble and that was like a a, a first oh okay. and, uh, they had the uh tna it used to be impact wrestling mm-hmm. but now it's yep. total non-stop action <laughs> supposedly you know yeah. tna wrestling's knockouts champion jordan grace uh was actually in the wwe royal rumble and she lasted about 20 minutes and it was pretty good because uh it was a nice showcase for her and it was like one of those like what they never (laughs) do this so because i i would imagine um that it's it's kind of a way to distract from some of the other news in the wrestling world these these days 
Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Um, kind of like the distraction we've got over in the foot in in the football arena. Uh, by the way, are are you ready for for Taylor Bowl? Huh. Kind of, <laughs> sort of. I mean, it doesn't matter who scores the most points; the CIA wins, right? <laughs> well, you know what? I'm I'm actually kind of going to shake it off <laughs> and 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 uh, sort of. Uh, Kind of not boycott it, but just it's it's yeah. not really, not really my bag. Yeah, mine either. All right, so you have something to show. Uh, I'm going to give you the floor and let you show, and I will I will sit back here and punch buttons in the background and and take care of a couple of technical things, and uh, let you have uh, let you have your your moment there, sir. So take it away. All right, thank you. Hello, everyone. Um, we here at Sci-Fi for Me TV um, are big proponents of tabletop games. Um, we uh, are fans of Dungeons and Dragons per se, um, but with all of that open license debacle that happened uh, a few months ago and um, the sort of layoffs with uh, Hasbro, uh, specifically in the Dungeons and Dragons Sphere and Wizards of the Coast, um, they do Magic the Gathering, uh, the trading card game. Um, we're always on the hunt for sort of independent companies that uh, play in the in the same realm of Dungeons and Dragons as far as like miniatures or tabletop games. So you can go ahead and experience the fun of gathering together uh, without necessarily having to... Um, spend a ton of money on individual things just in order to play one particular game. Now I'm going to talk about a couple of things here, a couple of different companies. The first one uh, that we have discovered is a studio called Wild Spire Miniatures. They've done a couple of Kickstarter campaigns for their different highly detailed 3D printed miniatures. And now they've actually uh, been able to set up a store on Amazon and some other uh, <clears throat> other uh, e-commerce platforms where you can buy bundles of their miniatures at a really, really um, quite inexpensive price as a compared to some of the other larger uh, companies that are a little bit more well-known as far as uh, miniatures go, like Warhammer, for instance. Um, they're like one of the biggest ones. They have like Warhammer Fantasy, Warhammer uh, Space Marines, that type of thing. But the thing is that with those, um, you're usually uh, getting about like maybe 10 to 15 miniatures for about like 30 to 45 bucks. And um, then you have to buy the paint and all of this other stuff. But anyway, getting back to Wildspire, uh, Wildspire has these great kits of like 15 miniatures that are really highly detailed um, that go with all sorts of different fantasy campaigns. In fact, they have their own sort of like fantasy lore that you can download free from Wildspire if you purchase the miniatures. Um, and for 15 miniatures... Um, they're about about $20 for 15 So that's a, about half off your average kind of Warhammer price if you're looking for like highly detailed miniatures. Now, here's one of them. Now, the 
detail here may be a little bit off because I did prime this one, but you can see like a little halfling and they've got this huge sword that they're crashing down upon the stone um, crashing down upon like a stone floor to like open up a gate or something like that. And you can see there's like flame detail and the sculpted miniature is holding on to the edge of the sword. And um, actually they are suspended above the sword because the sword was like so big that it like kind of shot them into the air. And they even have like a detailed cape that is coming off of them. It's like sort of like, flying off of them as you would like if you were jumping the little one right there so some of the detail and then they've got some cute little whimsical characters they have some cat kin that they call um and they have like a tinkerer cat kin that's got like a sort of a steampunk outfit and here's a interesting one this is like a little mushroom dwarf and she's got a mushroom cap a hat and you've got the individual braids here but the one that i really wanted to speak about for wildspire and the one that i picked up that is really really great it's a huge bookish dragon and this is about six inches tall and it comes pre-assembled um or partially pre-assembled, I should say. There's four pieces that you put together, and you simply just slip them into the slots. But here is the dragon itself, and you can see more of the detail here on this one because we it hasn't been primed yet. But you can see the sculpt on the face, and it's holding a book. And this one is about six inches tall, and this is... $20. It's $20 for this miniature, whereas like some of the larger miniatures that you get for like Warhammer, excuse me, I just hit the mic, um, you would pay like $40 to maybe $50 on some of them. And here's the wings, and you just simply slip these into place, and you would need to attach them with a little bit of super glue, but you slip them into place here on the slots. And it even comes with a base here that is also highly detailed. We can see here, it's got all the different books. And we've even got like dragon footprints there. And this one just simply slips in to place like right here. Uh, Christopher, Cam, Cam comments on the price being cheap. From a, from a quality standpoint in the sculpts and the material... How do these compare to other miniatures that are out there on the market? Hmm. From a from a sculpt standpoint, I would say that uh, especially with like the Bookish Dragon and um, the smaller miniatures, the sculpts are really highly, highly detailed for the price point. And this one, um, as I mentioned, this was uh, $20. And um, as we can see, I'll show you the box again here. You'll be able to see like the, the wings on it. When it's assembled with the wings, 
And then it also comes with a bestiary for their own stats and everything like that. So if you wanted to add this to a game and were unsure about the stats, they have that all set up for you. Whereas uh, some other companies, you'll just buy the miniatures and it's like, okay, well, you, you're supposed to know all this stuff. It's like, okay, uh, Space Marines, so, you know, Solara or something like that, you know? Yeah. And um, you're paying a lot for the quote-unquote name right. and not necessarily the quality on the miniatures, but... I should offer up the disclaimer that we don't make any money off of any of this for a while. No, no, we're not sponsored by these at all or anything like that. It's just, I, um, I'm kind of like the RPG guy around here. Have you, uh, um, have you got a lot of, of miniatures from other companies and, and, and this is, these are as good or better. I have, um, I've, I've gotten some, uh, like Warhammer miniatures, um, and then some other like smaller fantasy member, uh, mm -hmm. like games. Well, Games Workshop is kind of tied into the Warhammer, yeah, but they also do like you know, Lord of the Rings miniatures, that sort of thing. Um, these are comparable, if not better, in some respects, um, to the quality that you're getting with the, with the Games Workshop and the Warhammer miniatures. Um, because uh, with Games Workshop and the and Warhammer, um, they've kind of become sort of like D and D as far as like miniatures go. Right. You know, there's like, oh, hey, if you're speaking to miniatures, oh, you got to go to Games Workshop. And uh, Wildspire is a fairly new company, and and they're trying to get a hold in that marketplace. And they're doing that with with quality and price point. Yeah. All right, and you've got something else you wanted to share with some, with our folks. Yes. Uh, speaking of uh, RPGs and games, um, with uh, like D and D, it can be quite intimidating to uh, start into the the uh, sort of journey into the lands of. RPG because you have to buy like the the game master book the player book you've got the screen all of these individual pieces that you have to buy separately um, there is a company um, called Free League and they have the rights to uh, Blade Runner 2049 and they've won a lot of awards with that one as well as the Lord of the Rings uh, role-playing game they do have a lord of the rings role-playing game then they have one called the one ring um, as well as the alien rpg but they do have some in-house properties um, that they have created that are really really interesting and speaking of like getting your foot in the door uh, into rpgs i've found a game from them called forbidden lands which is great. It's a great entry point to RPG. I'm holding up the cover here. And the cover sort of looks like a uh, fantasy novel. You've got a um, knight here in a red cape riding a sort of like a crocodile, dodo-esque kind of lizard bird on top of a mound. 
uh, atop of a stone mound, and you've got a couple of different adventurers. You've got three of them below on the cover here, and it's kind of like a ravaged land. And Forbidden Lands um, is great because it's a kind of a Hyborian, sort of like Conan the Barbarian take on RPGs, where you have this land that had been cut off from the world, the world that had been created in the uh, in the mythos of this game by a blood mist, and the blood mist has since dissipated, and um, adventurers have gotten together to explore the once forbidden lands in search of all these relics and treasures. And the neat thing about this game is that instead of like having your group all together at like an inn or a tavern, as you would in most RPGs, your group are separate entities and they're just a bunch of uh, like kind of raiders and rogues and they're out there to survive and uh, gather uh, and gather as much treasure as they can. And so this game is like really set up for a lot of really nice um, sort of intensive one shot adventures. Um, it's really neat too, because you purchase the game and it's pretty much all in one, except for, of course, the role-playing dice. And you can pick up a set of role-playing dice for like under $10 um, on Amazon, for example. Um, but inside the box, you've got a really, really nice kind of faux leather-bound game master's guide. That's pretty. And that is equivalent to a dungeon master's guide in D&D. And it's got a really nice illustrations here we can see like it's an illustration of some trolls there and some stats this game master guide not only comes with the rules of the game in the history and we have an int here they kind of borrowed a little bit from tolkien you know that, that, that artwork is very evocative of stuff like early D D and frank rosetta uh I, I like that that's that's really cool looking exactly and here's one there's a death knight Nice. And um, it's got in here, it's got halflings and goblins and um, orcs in society, uh, the orc society. The neat thing about this is the uh, in the beginning for the history of this game um, or history of the Forbidden Lands, you had uh, two races that were predominant in the land and that those were the dwarves and the elves. And then the dwarves and the elves created the orcs. Um, as kind of like a subservient class. And then the uh, humans actually uh, migrated from a land that uh, they could no longer live in to the this uh, area that was soon to become the Forbidden Land. And um, they were separated. Their settlements were separated by mountains. And um, there were some explorers that would go over the mountains and they encountered the dwarves and the elves and then as part of a sort of like a peace treaty between the, the, the three clans of uh, the dwarves, elves, and humans, they would exchange, and in the book they referred to them as hostages, um, exchange different citizens of their various clans to live with the elves or the orcs. Uh, with Yeah, live with the elves, orcs, or dwarves, or 
those kin to live with the humans. And therefore you, uh, sometimes you would have like half, half breeds. Um, and so essentially the main characters that you have to choose from in the game are your just basic, you've got your dwarves, elves, orcs, humans, and then you've got your, your half breed. Um, and it has a detailed history of the land and everything in there. The main thing about this game, as I mentioned before, is that you're exploring the uh, once uh, fertile and treasure-rich forbidden lands that were ravaged by monsters and demons because an evil sorcerer opened up a portal. It's always the way, right? <laughs> and uh, summoned all of these demons in order to take over the whole world, but just essentially covered that world, or at least that part of the world, um, where the dwarves and the elves used to be populated in this kind of demonic blood mist, and that separated that world into two sections, and so everyone had to relocate to where the humans were. So you've got not only got the Game Master's Guide, you also have this faux leather Forbidden Lands Player's Handbook. And it also has like an orc talent, like you're unbreakable, and it's talking about the different kins that you can play, and the druids, and it's even got weapons in there. The Games Master Guide has a whole bestiary with it, so you don't necessarily have to buy a monster manual. Didn't D and D do a Didn't D and D do a leather bound edition at one point? Uh, like third edition or fourth fourth edition, didn't they do a set that was that faux leather bound like you've got there? Yes, yes, they did. Okay. Um, I forget the price point of that, but I believe it was uh, like quite expensive. Um, this one, I think you're going to be really surprised with how much this is. Um, you've got a, you've also got a double sided Forbidden Lands map. It's got the hexes on it, so you can use your miniatures. And here's the other side. Nice. And it also comes with stickers because, as I mentioned before, the characters that you have to play with these games, you can have them as a regular, you know, longer-running campaign, but ultimately it's designed for kind of like one-shots or like, you know, maybe a weekend game spread over two days and that you can go ahead and you can actually put and personalize the map yourself with like different tombs. And there's even a cemetery. Uh, there's even tombstones if a character dies and they're like, you know, don't, don't worry about it. If a character dies, you know, in fact, that acts actually adds an extra spice to the game, but, but they also warn GMs, of course, you know, don't be mean. Don't like set out to kill your characters, <laughs> that sort of thing. Yeah. You get all this stuff. And then you also get the Lands of Adventure, where if you're new to game mastering or dungeon mastering, all you have to do is you take a D6 and you roll this based on the different charts, and it'll start you out with a adventure. It'll like even give you NPC characters like, oh, hey, let's see, a, a fighter has been captured and you need to rescue him. So you just basically and, roll roll the six sided die and and it'll it's like it, it'll choose it'll choose the adventure for you, and that, it, it exactly and yeah. the, and of course you you fill in all the other details you know 
with your imagination and what the uh, other characters do for interactions and stuff like that. Yeah. And so this is basically a great way to like get started into the the uh, realm of tabletop games without having to be intimidated by like, oh my gosh, we've got to do a crit check, you know, a critical role check versus dexterity, all of this other stuff. Right. And um, this whole set was only 65 bucks. That's not bad at all. Wow. And that's, that's pretty impressive. Yeah. Now they also, they do have a, another uh, faux leather bound bestiary that they've mm -hmm. come out with this year. Um, but it is not necessary to get that yeah. uh, in order to uh, enjoy and play the game. And uh, most of the uh, monsters in the uh, game master guides are your, I say typical fantasy monster that you've got your harpies, hydras, that sort of stuff. And as I mentioned before, it does lead back to more of like a, a Hyborian kind of Frank Rosetta Conan sort of land. Um, but that being said, it's not like a dark, like, oh, my God, you're going to die every time, you know, you <laughs> go out the front door sort of land here. Yeah. Um, it's also won a lot of independent game awards. In fact, it won the product of the year award um the silver uh category best rules silver category best cartography gold and best production value gold at the 2019 independent game awards and yes yeah, it, and it's really fun and again we don't make a dime if you buy any of this no 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 i'm It'd sorry be nice if, if we like did commercial. no 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 i've i've i it's it's just the that's the running gag here so, you know we're always got to put these disclaimers out. I was like, no, we don't make anybody of any of this stuff. It would be oh, nice. Certainly, no, this was, this was purchased with my own money. Uh, um, I, I just like to let the audience know about yeah. really fun, sort of like independent games. Well, especially so, in know, the wake of what wizards of the coast was trying to do with D and D and what they're still trying to do. And people talking about where are the viable alternatives to this kind of stuff. You've got, you know, Pathfinder, and you've got other other things that are out there, and of course, other other groups making new RPGs in the wake of all of that mess. Uh, so it's good to know that there are options that are out there. Oh yes, definitely. And just one more thing: if you uh, do decide to order this from the Free League website, as opposed to like trying it on other e-commerce websites, they will give you a code for the uh, virtual tabletop edition through drive through RPG, they will throw that in. Um, and normally if you just do, you know, buy the digital by itself, it's usually about like 30 or 40 bucks, but it comes with all the stuff and, and it comes, uh, you can print out different handouts and stuff like that. Um, so they have a cooperative uh, crossover with RPG. So you're essentially getting two versions of this game if you purchase it through their website you get the the physical media version and you get the uh the digital version very cool speaking of characters dying and people taking taking issue with it i want to get your i want to get your take on this because <clears throat> sure. this blew up yesterday and today um the new video game suicide squad killed the justice league apparently okay. 
had a bug in it. It got pulled one hour after the release because the bug completes the game when you log in as a new player and gives you the ending. And the video clip is all over the internet right now. Uh, this is um, this is IGN reporting. Rock City Studios has been forced to pull the Suicide Squad, kill the Justice League offline just one hour into its Deluxe Edition's early access launch due to a bug that automatically completed players' games. Uh, though the though the Batman Arkham Universe live service game doesn't launch proper until February 2nd, uh, those who paid an extra $30 for the Deluxe Edition were granted three days of early access. This means it now should be available in New Zealand, but as reported by VGC, the game is currently offline and will be for several hours. Rocksteady issued a statement on Twixer addressing the issue, though didn't indicate if the game would still be offline as of its launch in the U.S. or other regions. The developer didn't say if it would issue refunds for customers who paid the X-30 either. Um, so apparently they log in. They have full story completion. Rocksteady says, yeah, we're aware. We're trying to fix it. Um, how does something like this happen? I mean, that's just, that's just crazy. It, it, just, it, it is, because you would think that the company itself would uh rocksteady would have like at least beta testers right you know? yeah and, and 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 a bug of that magnitude um is yeah that it's it's absurd i mean I, well, I i'm just going back to like the release of Baldur's gate 3 you know all these other like studios were so up in arms like oh my god you you actually had the you know cojones to release a completed game without any major bugs yeah and, yeah. and at, at this one price point and in in you you know i mean i know baldur's gate took a long time to you know get there but once they said they were going to release it they released it and like what what you you actually mean we have to like really complete our games now <laughs> before we you know put them out yeah. Well, and you know, it that's a that's a long-running discussion in the gaming community where people are 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 critical of the fact that you've got so many different developers and publishers out there that are putting these games out and then here's an update, here's a DLC, here's an update, here's an update, here's another update, here's another update, and it's bug fixing as well as adding features that they didn't complete when it was released date and we're like no 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 have it ready and then release it it it, it shouldn't be it's it's like when you watch marvel or dc movies or television there shouldn't be homework i shouldn't have to go here in order to finish an experience over there and this game stuff is the same way. And I get it with microtransactions. You want to give them some extra features and some special things and some and some extras. But the stuff what you need in order to play the game, just that basic piece should be complete. <laughs> and you should have, like you say, you should have your quality control team go through there up, down, backwards, forwards, and sideways to make sure that this thing is... It's like developers say X. Testers say 
x plus 1 to the square root of 12 minus 16 plus 3. Oh, we broke it. You know, you, you've got people need to play the game in testing the way people play the game out in the real world. Certainly. And and the, the thing is, like, especially if you're getting like now you'll see and this has been going on for 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 a little while as well you'll have like a standard edition or you'll have a deluxe or an epic edition yeah and and with each edition like your standard you probably just get like the basic game and maybe like a pre-order like a, a different outfit for a character or something like that for a deluxe you get like more you know accessories and maybe like a soundtrack or something like that with yeah. the epic one you usually get like a sort of a physical item of some sort like a statue that sort of thing and that but but if you're if you're paying no matter you know what edition you're getting if you're paying your money you expect to put in the game at least you know have that <laughs> gaming experience without it like clunking out yeah within the first hour or um like well wait a second you've already completed this like Wait a second! I just installed the game. I yeah, haven't even started exactly. it up. Well, and, and Eastland's asking if this could be a developer shortcut that got left in somehow. But it, to me, it doesn't seem like this is even that. This is just uh, an if-then maybe that got skipped and said, "Oh, you've installed the game. Now you've finished the game. Here's the end." Yes, and 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 then with like especially with uh, uh, like uh, Suicide Squad, uh, Kill the Justice League. Um, you had these play, uh, these you know, uh, gameplay uh, trailers that were like ten minutes long, mm -hmm. showing you the gameplay, and um, you had uh, a Captain Boomerang not using boomerangs. Mm -hmm. He was using all these like fancy guns and yeah. stuff like that to sort of do this level that they were showing was kind of like a capture of the flag sort of level. Yeah. Um, well, and, and I just saw a trailer that said that there's an extra that you, you know, there's an extra add-on where you can put the Suicide Squad in the Justice League costumes. Like, mm -hmm. Okay, that's all fine and well and good. If the game will play, <laughs> if the game works. Yeah. I mean, you've got this thing here. Uh, this is another IGN. The price of the game already has fallen in the UK prior to the release. And it, it I mean... That's not a good look for Rocksteady. Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, and, and and as as I mentioned with like, like Captain Boomerang, you've got characters that that aren't even using their, you know, the the weapons that they're known for. Yeah. And and they were saying that it was more of a uh, based on the uh, gameplay footage that was shown like earlier this year. It was just sort of like an kind of an Overwatch clone it's like oh hey we've got to capture this one thing or we have to stop this at a certain amount of time that sort of thing um and so hopefully they've changed some of that up but um i guess right now at this point in time uh if you buy the game you're not gonna actually be able to find <laughs> out you'll you'll find out how it ends yeah, well, you know, it's if, if it's still the Justice League. It's all over social media how it ends. Uh, it's it's a very specific scene that uh, that is the end of the game, and it's not going over well in in socials. Everybody's like, "Wait, what? You did mm -hmm. you did that?" So yeah, it's gonna be interesting. Have you seen the? Do you see the new trailer for Ghostbusters came out this morning? 
Uh, yes, I did. I, I was able to check out uh, Frozen Empire, and that looks really, really good. It um, does. I'm, I'm really, really anticipating it. And um, as we, as you can see, uh, uh, Walter uh, Peck. Arthur, Arthur Peck is back. Yes. Yeah, and it is. Do you think maybe he's the mayor now? Could he possibly be the mayor? I'm thinking that he might be a mayor or like you know high city council. He's he's somewhere. Yeah. In in some position of power. Yeah, I hear Patton Oswalt is not in it that much, so that's you know, your mileage may vary on Patton Oswalt, but uh, but yeah, there's a new trailer out today for anybody who's interested. So, uh, all right, Christopher, what else have you got, sir? And that's well. I've got um, the Forbidden Lands and Wildspire are really, really fun. Um, there is a magazine that's been out for a little while that kind of delves into our wheelhouse. Um, this is an older issue I have here, but it is called Enchanted Living Magazine. And okay. uh, this one is the Vintage Witch issue. And it's a magazine that sort of like does kind of recipes and crafting for people with sort of kind of the sort of like a fantasy bent. And that this one, this article right here is uh, Bell Book and Beauty. So it's and a it's, it's a mock uh, it's a mock magazine, kind of like a tra- like a like a wizard or a dungeon or or a starlog type of thing. And that, uh, yes, it's, 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 um, it's a legit magazine, but it's also got, uh, it's sort of set up as like a, kind of like those lifestyle magazines that you have, oh, like, uh, okay, right, right. Hearth and home, that sort of thing. But this one is like enchanted living. So you've got the different, so it's fantasy. Stuff. Interesting. I I have not seen that one. And they are tied in with like Llewellyn and. You've got an article about here uh, about a broom maker, the art of broom craft. <laughs> okay. And uh, different like photos. Huh. Yeah. And they also have a um, thing here about uh, interesting articles. They had one issue dealing with uh, the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. This one is an article about the woman who could talk to bees. And kind of like a little short story fantasy thing. Huh. I'll have to check that out. And yeah, so it's a Enchanted Living magazine. It comes out quarterly and it's really a fun read. And it's like a nice sort of like uh, coffee table magazine, too, that'll definitely look good on the coffee table once you're done with it. Hmm. Nice. All right, sir. Thank you very much for sharing. Sure. And uh, you can find Christopher hosting Vault of the Killer Bees. Uh, I am still uploading past episodes, <laughs> but we've got new stuff coming on the way. Uh, so stay tuned here because we've got a lot. Uh, we've got a lot ahead of us. Uh, and and Christopher is going to be very busy. Oh, so, yes, definitely. All right. Thanks, and in, in fact, the last uh, episode that you uh, uploaded was about another great independent game, the B-Movie Game. The B-Movie Game. Which is really fun. You get to yeah. be a uh, pro- 
uh, producer for an independent film studio like, you know, Devil Pig or Unicorn Pictures. And um, the object of the game is to uh, pitch a B-movie based on these random cars that you get. You can be like bacterium babes from outer space, that sort of thing. So. You, all right, so that that video you can find in our uploads and over on the on the Killer Bee playlist. So go check that out today. Christopher, thanks very much for being here, sir. Certainly, thank you for having me. All right, have a great one. We will check in with you later on, probably in the week. I'm sure he'll be calling in as as uh, we get into open line hours and such. A uh, couple of things that I want to get into here real quick before our guest arrives. We got Sean Bowman coming in at uh, at the hour, uh, but a um, couple of things here that are eh, well a little squicky. J.D. Barker, uh, thriller horror author, uh, including Dracul, the Fourth Monkey. He's got a new book that's coming out. And he has come under fire because there's a little bit of um, controversy, let's say. Uh, He has apologized for said controversy. His agent has dropped him. What happened, uh, just to summarize, he's got a new book coming out called Behind a Closed Door. It's a thriller. It's an erotic thriller. And his representatives somewhere, somehow, sent out an email <clears throat> to BookTok, TikTok influencers in the book community, and made the request for them to make racy content <clears throat> promoting the new book with the book covering private parts. And it apparently went out to influencers regardless of age. Now, Barker has since come out saying that was never supposed to come out. It was not approved. He has apologized. He has taken he has taken responsibility for it. And he said that was never approved to go out the way it was. Apparently... The character in the book does some things, and the original idea, as he relates it, was that you would get some of these social media influencers to do some of the kind of things that are in the book, and somehow that translated into this, and he's like, that was never the intent, but he's been dropped from his agency, and we'll see. Uh, we'll see what happened here. Uh, what what goes on? The book is supposed to come out May thirteenth. Um, I don't know. It, this is this is one of those things where, like, you just you're playing with fire. Although <clears throat> I do, I do understand when when things kind of go sideways like this. There are a number of things. And having having been in this pipeline myself, I can understand when something like this goes sideways, it's usually because somebody somewhere gets it in their head that they can do something and they go forward with it without double checking. <clears throat> and they sit there and go, oh, hey, this would be a great idea. I had, 
when I was when I was working in television, I had a salesperson come to me one time and she says, I have a client who wants to do something and you're the only one that I trust to do it right. Are we buffering? I'm st I'm stuttering here in OBS. Are we going to crash? And she says, "You're the only one that can do it right." I was like, "Okay, I I don't I don't feel I don't feel good about this already." So the finance manager to use auto dealer wanted to put a naked girl in the back of a pickup. And we were like, "You can't do that. You can't do that on television. The FCC would have our heads." It isn't going to happen. But he was adamant that you've got to do something like this, something sexy. And I remembered a poster back in the 80s, and a lot of us will remember this, this poster, the blonde on the hood of the Ferrari. Now, the owner of the dealership had a Ferrari in the, in the, in the showroom. I thought, well, okay, we'll, we'll, you know, try this. Are we, bu we are buffering really bad. What's going on here? Let me, let me look at a couple of things here, because this is not supposed to be doing this. Are we okay there? So I'm like, okay, well, what if we shot it, when we put her on the hood of the Ferrari, and we imply, but we don't, because you can't show anything. And I said, just for cover, I want to shoot it other ways. We'll shoot her in some denim. We'll shoot her in a fancy little cocktail dress. And, and that way we have different, different versions because at some point something like this is just going to go sideways. And we closed the set and said, nobody can be in here. And as we're getting through all of this, we come to find out that, uh, the owner of the dealership never approved it <laughs> and it never went on the air. Uh, and, and it was like, um, okay, we're, we're just gonna, we're just gonna not remember that this happened. We're, we're going to, we're going to ignore this now. <laughs> so, uh, but these kind of things happen. Somebody gets, somebody gets a bee in their bonnet and you know, that's that's the thing. You can you can have these things happen. So for for JD Barker to take ownership of it and say, yeah, it happened. It wasn't supposed to. I'm sorry. That's a step. But at the same time, it 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 does highlight the fact that if you don't have good communication with your team, then mistakes will happen. And it could very well be. He got caught, and he says, oops, I'm sorry, and it wasn't supposed to do it, and maybe he's trying to cover. I, who knows? But the fact that this kind of thing went out <clears throat> shows that somebody either thought they could get away with it or did it without really knowing what it was that they were going to do. I, I think probably somebody thought that they could get away with it. It sounds like, may I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. He says it was miscommunication. This was an early draft of an idea based on what happens in the book. And I can understand that, you know, the, I mean, mar marketing and PR people try to do this kind of stuff all the time. You know, this is, you know, hey, this person does this thing in the book. Why don't you do this thing over here on your on your socials? And we, you know, there's, there's media tie-in stuff like that all the time. But there usually needs to be a little bit better plan 
than uh, than that. So anyway, uh, I tell you, somebody who's got a plan more than more than most and is executing that plan pretty flawlessly is Taylor Swift. <clears throat> I just, I'm just saying. So. Anyway, uh, it's I I I don't know. I, it is it is one of those things where uh, the marketing on this. I saw a, a headline. Um, I saw a headline that she has added brand value to the NFL and the Kansas City Chiefs on the order of something upwards of three hundred and thirty million dollars. And when you say brand value, what that means is all of this media coverage, all of these magazine covers, all this radio chatter, all of this online discu- you know, discussion, radio spots, newspaper, you know, uh, 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 TV news, all, network coverage, all of this stuff. You could buy this kind of media coverage and it would be worth... 330 331 million dollars the fact that they haven't had to buy any of it and they still get all of this stuff that's the value the brand value this is how much it's worth if they were to spend money to get this kind of attention instead they're getting all of this stuff for free and all of this attention is going to the NFL all this stuff's going to Taylor Swift all of this stuff's going to Kansas City Chiefs and <clears throat> a lot of people are convinced that it's a campaign and and it is it totally I I am 100% sure that this whole relationship thing her her and Travis Kelsey is manufactured. That's just me. Whether it's a marketing manufacturer or a government manufacturer. I mean, your mileage may vary on those conspiracies, but stop and consider, why is it that nobody is able to search Taylor Swift on Twixer right now? If you put Taylor Swift in the search bar, oops, something went wrong. Which means, and I know, ostensibly, they say it's because there's some some AI-generated fake explicit photos out there. But there have been fake explicit photos of a lot of celebrities for as long as there's been Photoshop. Why protect her specifically? Because you can't search Taylor Swift for the AI stuff, but you also can't search Taylor Swift for the, the, the PSYOP stuff either. And Mike Benz has done some really good work at putting out video uh, saying... Uh, that uh, certain certain government agencies have spent money and have made uh, made uh, deals with celebrities to go into other countries and kind of generate the sentiment that leads to uh, changes in government. I just I'm just saying. Okay, so apparently apparently there is a dog. In the yard. Uh, so, Christopher, I'm going to let you vamp for a second. Just make stuff up here for a moment. And um, I will be right back because apparently there's a dog in the yard who's not supposed to be in the yard. So, uh, uh, so it's, e- it's I mean, it's either Christopher or Todd. 
but I think Christopher can talk a little bit more eloquently than Todd. So, so Christopher, you're you're on deck right now, and I'll be right back. Okay. Hello, once again, everyone. Um, since I've got a little bit of extra time, um, how about we talk about a great uh, creative voice in filmmaking that I think should be highlighted a little bit more. Um, he is a Czechoslovakian filmmaker, um, stop motion animator, um, very much sort of in the lane of um, kind of like the Terry Gilliam, what he what Terry Gilliam was doing for the Monty Python bumpers, that sort of thing. Um, but this one, but this filmmaker is heavily, um, he was doing steampunk-esque uh, adventure movies uh, before actually the, the term steampunk was coined. And um, I'm speaking of Carl Zeman right here. And uh, Criterion Collection has come out with a great Blu-ray set of three of his films, A Journey to the Beginning of Time, The Invention, uh, Invention of Destruction, and The Fabulous Baron Munchausen. Um, yet again, we get another Gilliam reference. The neat thing about this box set is not only do you have the restored films to take a look at that are wondrous, um, as far as not only stop motion, but also sort of um, paper animation goes. Um, you also have historical um, historians coming on and talking about the value of the films and giving a bit of a sort of kind of social political um, perspective about when these films were made in Czechoslovakia, what was going on at that point in time. And when I say sociopolitical, uh, um, I'm not speaking of anything sort of like woke or anything like that. It just gives more of a cultural context as to what resources were available at the time for filmmakers and what um, he, Carl Zeman was able to do with the resources that he had in hand. In fact, I'm showing one of the the inside of the Blu-ray case. And you can see here, he's got a Carl Zeman is in a black and white photo and he's got a 3d model, um, a physical model of a submarine that he has built. And he, you can see that he's tinkering with it uh, in the photograph. And then we've got a quote here. Um, I only have one wish and that is to delight the eyes and heart of every child. And so he's making these wonderful sort of adventure movies that were not necessarily, I mean, they were kids' movies, but um, if you look at the movies from the 70s with Disney and when they were making kids' movies, they they could be approached by anybody and, uh, by all ages, and some of them could actually be quite dark. Um, now, with Carl Zeman, in fact, you've got Journey to the Beginning of Time, which is a great sort of Land of the Lost-esque adventure. And with the Blu-ray set from Criterion, it actually it comes as a sort of a pop-up book. And you can see the cast here. They're on the raft, and it's sort of like a colorized photograph. And you have the... Uh, or a hand-tinted photograph, and then you see them, they're encountering a woolly mammoth. 
and you've got these great sort of like stop motion animation style film here. And then you've got my favorite film of the series, The Invention for Destruction. It's a black and white film. And it's got a lot of great sort of like Jules Verne, Master of the World kind of influences where a balloon flies into a dead uh, volcano crater. But there is a secret base located in the crater itself with a mad scientist that is trying to make this ultimate weapon. And then, of course, you've got the fabulous Varen Munchausen. And we see here, if we open it up, he is flying atop a cannonball that has been recently fired out of a cannon. And you've got all these really fun animations. Uh, the films themselves, yes, they are old. Um, but the restoration is fantastic with them. They... They show their age, um, but there aren't any sort of like uh, distorted images or cracks or uh, sort of hairs in, in the film as you're watching it. So, you know, you've got that kind of antique patina, vintage patina, as it were, on the film. But the, uh, the films themselves, the prints, look immaculate. They're really, really crisp, definitely showing off the the great stop motion animation by Carl Zeman and um, inside the Blu-ray, you also have this great sort of pamphlet that talks about Carl Zeman's process, a little bit of his history. And it also gives some information about the restoration and the neat thing about the pamphlet. It looks like an old turn of, the last century, we're talking about the uh, 20th century newspaper. It's got a great sort of like kind of font for that. And even some information about the different films that are disguised to look like vintage ads from a newspaper that would be from like, you know, the, the early uh, 1900s. I say 1900s, the early 20th century. That he's a great great filmmaker. I believe you can look up some of his films on YouTube uh, as well as um, you can purchase the Blu-ray uh, from Criterion um, at any major e-commerce website. And um, I highly, highly recommend it if you're into any sort of fantasy movies, the art of stop motion animation and um, just great filmmaking in general. Um, it's The Three Fantastic Journeys by Carl Zeman. Z-E-M-A-N. Okay. Tucker is home. <laughs> there we go. Uh, okay, so, Christopher, thanks very much uh, for, uh, for vamping. Uh, and I guess we will see you at some point a little bit later. Um, yeah, this this is what happens, folks. The the dogs in the neighborhood know that our place is the place to go when they get loose. So we had to go deal. I think thanks very much for your patience. All right, we're going to take a real quick break. When we get back, 
Sean Bowman is here, and we're going to talk film criticism. So, and I'm going to catch my breath. So, anyway, uh, here we go. We will be back right after this. You're listening to Sci-Fi For Me Radio. Until you unsubscribe in a sudden but inevitable betrayal. Sci-Fi For Me is about to take you on an incredible journey into the realms of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Interviews with writers, filmmakers, artists, and actors. Conventions and fandom. Previews and reviews of movies and television. Sci-Fi For Me is working to be the most popular science fiction magazine in the solar system. Subscribe now and enter the fantastic world of Sci-Fi For Me, delivering the multiverse since 2009. Hi everyone, Jason Hunt here, taking a moment to say thank you for listening to the podcast on your player of choice and to invite you to watch the program as it unfolds live on our various video platforms. Not only will you get to see any visual references we have, but you also have a chance to interact with us through the chat widget and during the open line hour when you can call in and be a part of the show. Join us live from the bunker Monday through Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern U.S. only on Sci-Fi For Me TV. If you unsubscribe to our podcasts, our legion is doomed. This is Sci-Fi For Me Radio. All right, ladies and gentlemen, here we go. Uh senior office dog there apparently not faced at all that we had a visitor (laughs) those kind of things happen and we just roll with it welcome back everybody we are live from the bunker my guest this hour is a film critic and self-styled cinephile he has been a big fan of movies for ages and ages and ages he is the co-founder of disappointment media founder or co-founder of disappointment media Uh, co-founder and uh he is uh all over twitter his his original film critic blog was big tuna on film (laughs) and he has (laughs) He has since gone on to write for various different websites, and he joins us now. Sean Bowman, welcome to the program, sir. Thank you for having me. Really excited to chat today. And I appreciate your patience while we uh, while we dealt with a couple of things. <laughs> uh, so, where do we begin? I guess the the biggest the biggest question for me is when somebody says film critic, there's automatically this response some people have a visceral negative response oh as a film critic what do they know and then there's some that are just you know their word is gospel and if this person likes it then it must be good but you look at some of the different scores online various different places rotten tomatoes metacritic and and those sites have their inherent problems to be sure but there are some times where the critic score and the audience score are completely different, and sometimes they're on par. How do you navigate as a film critic when people, when you tell people you're a film critic? Yeah. So I think the first thing to keep in mind, you know, is that film criticism is a matter of taste. You know, art is subjective inherently. And so the movies that I like are not necessarily going to be the movies that 
everyone else in the world likes. I have very specific tastes of things I enjoy and things I don't enjoy. Um, and imagining that everybody in the world is going to align with every film critic in the world is futile because it's just not going to happen. Right. You, your best bet with film criticism is to find a few voices that you really resonate with, that you really connect with and take those kind of as you would a friend recommending a movie to you. You know, I have a few other film critics that whose work I read that I know if I read them and they really like a movie that I'm probably going to really like a movie because our tastes tend to align a lot. You know, I know that if I read, for example, David Ehrlich from IndieWire, who's a fantastic film critic, mm. great writer, very informed opinion. I know that he and I don't usually align a lot on the things we like. So just because David Ehrlich doesn't like something doesn't mean I'm not going to like something. Right. You know, and I think the best bet for someone is to kind of try to discover those film critics that they like on their own. Uh, and I do think that like those, you mentioned those tools like Rotten Tomatoes and Metacritic. I think that those are best used as tools to find those film critics. You know, I, I wouldn't take those as gospel, like you said, yeah. uh, especially because those systems do have some flaws to them. Uh, and we can go more into those flaws if you'd like. <laughs> but basically, I think that you're going to want to look for people who are reporting on those movies that you like to watch. So for example, if you like sci-fi movies, if you like horror movies, if you like superhero movies, you're not going to want to look for somebody who's just reviewing foreign dramas. Yeah. You know, if you like foreign dramas, you don't want to look for somebody who's writing for bloody disgusting. That's all horror movies, you know, those disalignments would kind of frustrate you with film criticism because they're just not the, the writer that's, looking at the films the same way you're looking at the films. Well, and, and you talk about the flaws with Rotten Tomatoes. I did not see, I have not seen much in the way of online discussion about media critic, for example, or the IMDB scoring system as much as there was a discussion on the corruption of Rotten Tomatoes with regard specifically to Captain Marvel, Star Wars, and all of these different, you know, people that are out there, especially on the in the in the YouTube Rumble Odyssey community, the online community, basically saying, well, half of the board of Rotten Tomatoes are former former employees of Disney, and you know, there's no there's there's no uh, objectivity. There's a conflict of interest there because, of course, they're going to be biased and. The you know the changes at YouTube, for example, anybody that's critical of Captain Marvel and all all of this stuff that came out. As a film critic, you're having to deal on the other side of this because your reviews get get included in a lot of these different sites and these you know factored into scores and stuff. How compromised do you think these sites actually are when it comes to ethical reporting of actual? reviews and opinions and scores of these films so i do want to start by saying i am not affiliated with rotten tomatoes uh and i'm sure. not reported in the tomato meter oh okay um, so, so they don't is, they don't include you yet yeah i'm not included okay. uh, right. and so so this is my understanding of the system is secondhand um from friends i know who are in the system but from what i understand 
a majority of critics do self-report to Rotten Tomatoes. So there is like a portal that you go into and you submit your review, you submit the little one sentence blurb of whatever quip or summary you want to include and whether you rank it fresh or rotten. Uh, there are some exceptions to that, you know, some outlets that are like the big outlets, like Talking Variety, IndieWire, The Wrap, um, all of those trade publications, and as well as like the newspapers, so like New York Times, LA Times, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, those people, Rotten Tomatoes does have a team that pulls those reviews themselves. And if the critic disagrees with what has been reported of their review, the critic can file a complaint and Rotten Tomatoes team will change that. So I will say there are checks and balances to make sure that it's not being misrepresented to what the critic is saying. So I think that that's the first concern. The second concern is that I think people need to understand what Rotten Tomatoes really means. So what the score actually means. A 60% on Rotten Tomatoes is considered fresh. Anything above a 60%. But a 60% does not mean it is a 6 out of 10 movie. It right. means that six out of 10 critics gave it a thumbs up, which that thumbs up is supposed to mean six out of 10, but it doesn't mean, you know, some critics in that 60% might be giving it a 10 out of 10. Some critics in that 60% might be giving it a six out of 10. So the Rotten Tomatoes score isn't necessarily reflective of the actual quality of the film, more so how many people liked it. And I do think, especially when it comes to genre cinema, Rotten Tomatoes in the past uh, was a little unfair because you had situations where a lot of the people reporting on them were those newspapers and trade outlets. And I think that in recent years, they have expanded their roster to include more niche publications where you have those critics who like horror movies, who like sci-fi movies that are reporting on those horror and sci-fi movies and are being included in the discussion in the the aggregation of those film scores. And then I think the other side of things, a lot of the controversy with Rotten Tomatoes was also the audience score, which is not something that critics are involved in at all. Right. Uh, and that is something that they've also improved in recent years. So now they're requiring uh, verification, I believe, where you're having to like upload a movie ticket photo for your uh, review as an audience member to count towards the audience score. Because I remember when Captain Marvel was the example you used. When that came out, there was a lot of controversy as to whether the people had actually even seen the movie or if they were just trolling. Yeah. And so now that they have that verification process in place, they know that people have now seen those movies and aren't just doing it to review bomb the film. How, how prevalent do you think this this concept of review bombing was pro or con because uh, on the flip side of it not just people going in and and leveling a bunch of negative reviews out of movie but also the 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 group that was going in giving it four and five stars and oh this is great and it's magnificent and you know there are screenshots of the criticisms being fairly varied and the 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 praise almost copy and paste and it's like okay are these are these paid people are these is this a pr thing is this is this you know people just want to maintain their access because we heard uh from i think it was the uh schmoes uh schmoes no 
you know, they admitted in their podcast that they self-censor and they were saying positive things about things in order to maintain their access with Disney. And we have here, what, six months ago it came out that, that uh, I think it was either Fox or, or Paramount, somebody, I think I want to say it was Fox, uh, had, had paid, had told their employees to set up fake accounts in order to go after, you know, to, to support and, and, and praise and, and high five and, and all this. It's like, <laughs> how do we, how can we trust the system at all then at, at any of that point? And, and like you say, you find the critics that you, that you resonate with, but what's the risk of confirmation bias there? I mean, you, you have, you have that balance that you've got to find is like, well, yeah, I like how this, I like how this guy thinks, but how do you how do you avoid? I'm just going to say what I'm going to say in order to to satisfy certain parties. Yeah, so I think uh, as far as you were talking about the employees of certain studios, that's more in terms of the audience score than the critic score, right? Um, so that's not going to really be critic scores. Now, I will say with critics. Um, there are certain controversies about, you know, people wanting to maintain the access, like you said, like people getting press junkets, people getting interviews, people, everything like that, um, people getting into early screenings. That's something that I have seen controversy in the past about that. I think one of the most uh, well-known cases was, I forget which film it was, but the LA Times released an expose on something about Disney, and it wasn't like a film review. It was just they spoke bad about Disney and mm-hmm. then Disney blacklisted them. Yeah. And it was the LA Times, which is one of the biggest newspapers in the world. I, right? It's not I, somebody like me who's an independent freelancer for a big website or even like running my own independent website. Yeah. It was the LA Times. I want to say that that was because um, I remember that it was it was in the middle of the pandemic. And it was an article, if I remember right, it was an article on uh, Disney's plan to do day and date streaming releases for mm-hmm. the stuff. You know, it, it, your very, very minimal theatrical window and and going straight to streaming to Disney Plus. And LA Times was basically calling them out saying this is kind of not maybe a, bad, a, a good idea. And they had Christopher Nolan quoted in there and a number of other people sitting there going... I don't know why Disney's doing this. It's going to kill the theaters. And I think after that, uh, there was a big brouhaha about it. And LA Times, you're right. LA Times was was on the blacklist for a while after that. Right. And and I think the pushback that Disney got for blacklisting the LA Times, I think that that kind of reassured a lot of people in terms of their access. Uh, that they're not going to be blacklisted by studios from access because Mm -hmm. uh they're not friendly now i mean of course there are cases where you're not going to get access if you don't like a movie to a particular talent group so like let's say i don't like the new um I'm just going to use an example. I don't like the Mean Girls musical, which I actually love the Mean Girls musical. <laughs> um, but like, let's say I had put out a negative review of the Mean Girls musical. Yeah. They're obviously not going to give me access to the Mean Girls cast to interview the Mean Girls cast because that's not a good look. But as a journalist, 
I probably wouldn't be interviewing the cast of a movie I didn't like anyway. Uh, and, and I think that that's the difference. I, I think something that to keep in mind is that if I am personally speaking, my personal policy is that if I am doing an interview for a particular film and my view of the film is not flattering, I let the publicist know and I'll be like, Hey, I didn't really vibe with this movie. I do have some things I can talk about the filmmaker with that are not going to like, I'm not going to badmouth the movie in the interview because that's not the purpose of an interview. Right. You don't want to go to a filmmaker and be like, Hey, your movie sucks. <laughs> like that's just, that's not courtesy. Although know? there's something to be said for an adversarial interview at times, as long <laughs> as it doesn't get too out of hand. I mean, I think there's, there's, we've gotten to a point now where people are so thin skinned. And we see this a lot now in the comic book community, especially, but in other things, too, where your 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 creators, your directors, your producers, your writers, uh, anytime you criticize the work, they're taking it personally as criticism against them. And that's some of it is self-insert. I'm going to put myself into the story. But also you've got these young people who, for whatever reason, seem to think that I am what I make. And if you criticize it, whether that criticism is legitimate or not, if it's based on craft or if it's even, you know, I don't like the lighting, I don't like the color, I, you know, whatever, this person was the wrong person for the part, they take it personally. And you can't have that dialogue anymore like you used to be able to. And I, I do think that there's a difference between engaging with the complexities of a film versus insulting the film oh so sure. if you went and said hey your lighting is bad that's not appropriate if you go up and you're like hey you made some really unique choices with your lighting <laughs> can you explain the vision behind your lighting that's a completely different story you know you're kind of questioning them on on their interest in that choice yeah. versus saying you made a bad choice and I think that that's like a fine line that you kind of learn to tread as an entertainment journalist. It's something that I had to learn by trial and error because there were definitely some times when I asked the filmmakers some questions and they were like, I do not like this question at all. And it was, it creates such an awkward atmosphere. Oh, sure. With sure. The, for the rest of the interview. Yeah. And some of these interviews, you know, some of them are like four or five minutes. And so it's over before it's like, becomes an issue but if you're asking that question that they don't like as the second or third question in a 15 minute interview yeah, you have about rough. 10 minutes of just awkwardness so it's something that journalists kind of learn through trial and error yeah. kind of figuring out how to say certain things now i will say if there is a situation where i i i have only ever in my life taken one interview that was less a movie that I gave less than a three out of five. Um, I, I generally do not take interviews unless if I give a movie a three out of five or higher. I, I do want to like the movie if I'm doing an interview because I don't want to have that awkwardness of having that, yeah, I like the movie. Like, I, I don't want to have that awkwardness. Sure. So I, I do know that there are a lot of people who will just take interviews just for the star power just for everything like that. My personal policy is that if I'm interviewing and I don't like the movie, I don't run a review. I just run the interview. 
And then, like I said, that's only happened like one time, really, maybe twice, because there was one that I gave a three out of five that I was kind of mixed on mm -hmm. that I ended up liking, but I had a lot of criticism of it. And I just talked about the, the film with the filmmaker. I didn't really put out a full review because I, I, I think that it's much better to just go by the rule of if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it at all, sure. rather than something like fluffing up a positive review because you want to get the interview and to me personally speaking i've never had trouble with that in terms of access if i've gone to the publicist and been like hey i'm not wild about this movie i'm not going to review it happy to still do the interview these are the things i would talk about the topics i would like to talk about with them they still want to do the interview because they still want the people talking about the movie yeah. and they know that even if you don't like the movie, that can sometimes lead to, like you said, a more enriching conversation where you're talking about the, the nuances, the complexities of the film, something that you don't necessarily get if it's just the fluffy, hey, I love this movie so much. Uh, what was it like to get A-list actor in your cast? You know, mm -hmm. like those like typical press junket interviews, I, I do find that if you're not as glowingly positive about a film it's easier to ask those deeper questions in yeah. an interview so let's talk about your background for a second because you've been doing this for for a while now how did how did you get started it it i've i've read about the teacher challenge yes was that <laughs> that the the official beginning of all of this or did you have an interest that you were thinking well maybe i'll go into some entertainment journalism when i grow up yeah. So, I mean, I've always been into film. Uh, I, my dad is a movie theater manager. And so I, I grew up around movies kind of. And then when I was like six, I saw the film Pan's Labyrinth in theaters, which is probably way too young to be seeing that movie. <laughs> up, up, yeah. um, but I, I love that movie. Uh, and that was kind of like a really formative thing where I'm like, you know, I'd always loved movies, but that was when I was like, you know, movies are kind of, a passion that I really want to pursue, yeah. not just something I love. And so like I, like you mentioned, when I was in high school, there was a teacher of mine who was writing about movies and he challenged all of the film class, start writing about movies too. Start your own blog on Weebly or Wix or any number of sites that were around at the time. Now it's kind of fewer options because they've kind of purchased out each other. But now uh, he was like, start your own blog, go with it, run with it, just write a few words. It can be 100 words, it can be 200 words, just write something about the movies you're watching. And there were a, a few of us that started it, and I was the only one who stuck with it. And I stuck with that. I did that for about three years until I got into college. And when I got into college, I got a job doing like a permalancing thing, mm -hmm. um, meaning that I wasn't officially on staff. I wasn't salaried or anything, but they were the exclusive home to my writing um, at a comic book movie website. I did that for about a year. And then I decided to leave to launch Disappointment Media uh, with a friend of mine from college because I was really passionate about fostering underrepresented voices in film criticism. You know, I'm Latino myself, and I really enjoy talking uh, about films that 
connect with me and my identity. And I like working with writers who have unique voices that might have been overlooked by other websites in the past. We like to think of ourselves as kind of like a launching pad for underrepresented voices. So we've had several people who have gone on, who have worked with us for a few months or a year, and then they've gone on to get positions at much bigger sites. You know, and that's something that makes us extremely happy getting to see people, you know, grow thanks to the the mentorship and leadership that we do. There's been a lot of conversation over the last, I don't know, 10, 10 or so years, I guess, maybe not quite that long. Uh, this, this increasing focus on representation and identitarianism. And you, you, you mentioned that with some of the stuff that you guys have reviewed. How, how much do you think that per, personal ideology, political ideology, uh, agenda-driven methodology, whatever, how much of that is in the media coverage of our entertainment, do you think? And how do you avoid or how do you strike the balance in your writing, when you're reviewing something, or you're doing news articles, you're doing interviews, or you're doing a, a, a piece for, for your site, how do you balance all of the different things that you want to have in that piece? Because for, for you know, one person's representation is another person's lecture. So you gotta, you gotta find that, that, that line right there in the middle and say, okay, this is my review. How do you, how do you keep how do you keep that kind of from going sideways? I mean, I I think it all goes back to art is subjective. You know, our experiences are informed by our or sorry, our perspectives are informed by our experiences. Yeah. You know, and it's it's not just cultural experiences either. You know, obviously as somebody who's Latino, I am going to inherently relate to Latino films more than I would a film about maybe a black character or an Asian character, you know, I can still find things in those other films to relate to, but there are a lot of things that I might relate more directly to in the Latino film. Mm -hmm. And I think that something that a, a good film critic is able to do is find that balance between specificity and universality you know, you kind of break down these elements of representation that are culturally specific and unique and interesting for that culture, but then you tie it to the themes that everyone can relate to. Sure. And if you can find the way to form that connection between the specific and the universal, I think that that's the way you're going to have the best representation. You know, obviously you don't want something that is esoteric, um, because if you have something that is esoteric, it's going to put off a lot of people. Right. And I, I'm the first person to say, you know, in a film, if I see a film and I'm like, this is incredibly esoteric, there are so many in jokes that I understood because of my identity, but a lot of people, it's just going to go completely over their heads. Yeah. And I will say that in a review. I will say, you know, this worked for me because of the experiences I've had, but it's something that might go over a general audience's head. And I, I think that that's important to be able to recognize is when something works with you because of your personal experience 
versus something that works with you because it is universal. When you get into those specifics or that specificity like you're talking about, uh, how, how much have you studied the process of filmmaking so that when you go in there, you can say, well, you know, the editing could, you know, it could use another pass in editing to tighten it up a little bit. Um, the cinematography was X, the, you know, the, the, the music, the sound mix, the, the lighting and all these different things. What, what have you, what, what have you got in your background that informs those observations when you put them in a review? Yeah. So, I mean, I am like, I did go to school for film. Uh, okay. I do have a bachelor's degree in film. Um, I, I don't think that that's necessarily a requirement for sure. understanding film and being a film critic. Um, I think it really depends on your voice and what you're talking about. You know, you can go into a film with a very, per, with a perspective that's very storytelling driven. You know, you can go into a film and write a review that's like this story resonates with me because of xyz uh one of my former writers who actually left on to do their own thing was not formally educated in film he was just somebody who grew up around film for decades and he liked to write about things that connected with him so for example he was a recovering alcoholic and if there was a film about alcoholism or addiction he would write about how his own experiences were reflected in that film accurately. How, you know, he saw part of himself in that film and why that film worked for him because he could relate to it personally. Yeah. And I think that having that type of angle is just as important as having the angle of, you know, the editing works, the cinematography works, um, the sound works, the music works, everything like that. And I think the other thing that is perspective or is important is the historical perspective. So something that I understand a lot is, you know, Latin American history, because that's something that I connect with personally, having had families who were immigrants for Latin America. Uh, I, I do know a decent amount about Latin American history. And so I've had films in the past where people have been like, I don't really know about this film. It's, aggressively brutal and i'm like well it's a reflection of the culture and climate of that conflict in that latin american country and that's something that you know i understand because i understand the historical and societal factors that somebody else might not understand if they just aren't informed on that topic so let me ask you this with with everything that's been going on you mentioned you mentioned the conflicts that, been, that are going on down in in central south america for example stuff that's going on at the border stuff that's going on overseas there generally tends to be a trend in the kind of movies that get made for the times what we're living in how do you think 2024, 2025, what movies do you think are going to perform better? I know I'm putting you on the spot, <laughs> but not maybe not necessarily specific titles, but what right. kinds of movies? Because we're starting to see just a little bit of the rom-com coming back, the low-budget, you know, frat boy kind of comedy that's coming back. Horror is doing really well. Uh, with a lot of different things that are that are out there, you've got kind of the superhero capes are getting a sort of a reset 
because Marvel's only putting out one this year. You got Sony doing two. DC's kind of wherever. What do you think's going to hit this year? Um, I think 2023 is one of the most unpredictable years. We're in 2024 now. <laughs> no, I know, but I, I think 2023 was one of the most unpredictable years oh, yeah. I have ever seen at the box office in life. Yeah. And so trying to predict what's going to happen in 2024 <laughs> is impossible because like you look at 2023, your highest grossing movie of the year was Barbie, which people expected to do well, but they didn't expect it to make $500 million yeah. and more. Oppenheimer, an R-rated biopic about a guy making a bomb with a bunch of science jargon that's three hours long, made more than $300 million at the box office, which is something that's basically never happened before. <laughs> uh, the Taylor Swift concert documentary made almost $200 million at the box office, which set records Crazy. for concert movies yeah. and documentaries in general. So I think that we are very much in unprecedented times in terms of the box office. You know, um, like you mentioned, the rom-com is coming back. There's that movie with Sidney Sweeney, Anyone But You, yeah. that's currently in theaters right now. When it debuted in theaters in December, it didn't really make much of a splash. It made a small opening weekend, uh, and then people saw it, and they liked it, and they posted about it on TikTok, and people kept going and kept going and kept going. And now it's become one of the insider terms, leggiest yeah. uh, movies in a long time where it's, it opened small, but it did really well because it kept getting that word of mouth business. And I think the, the, the big factor here is quality. You know, you've got these movies that are good movies that are what people are looking for. Uh, as much as I personally loved Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, a lot of people did not like Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. <laughs> so that did not make very much money at the box office. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think really, I, I really enjoyed the Marvels. It, a lot of people didn't like the Marvels, yeah. so it didn't do well. Well, and I think you've got uh, you've got a lot of baggage with the Marvel stuff now, especially in the wake of all of these stories coming out with the visual effects departments being overworked, overrun, overwhelmed. And, you know, Marvel doesn't have a plan. The filmmakers don't know what they want to do. We're, we're offering up various different, you know, different variations of a scene so they can pick from one. I was like, no, that's, you don't do it that way. How much of that was Victoria Alonso versus Kevin Feige versus whoever else is involved in any of that? You know, if it feels like, there was, there has been, especially with phase four, kind of this chaotic, we really kind of don't know what we're doing anymore sense of, of whatever, whatever they were doing. I mean, Tatiana Maslany has come out talking about She-Hulk and the possibility for season two. And she's like, well, no, I think we blew our budget. It was like, you were spending $25 million per episode. And here's Godzilla minus one that they made for 10 million and the visual effects on this thing are just incredible. And it, it's what, 15, 20 guys. Right. And well, how much I, their budget was. And you're looking at it and you're like, okay, maybe it's apples and oranges, but not really because if they can do that for that little amount of money, of course you got to have a plan. 
Right. What could Marvel do if you've got 150 million instead of 300 million and you say, okay, we have very specific shots that we need to have done, do these shots and we're finished. Well, I think the strategy at Marvel has not been as deliberate with this new phase as it was in the past. Like in the past, you knew you were building to Infinity War to Endgame. Yeah. Like that's what they were building for. And, you know, Endgame was something that was absolutely necessary. As much as I love Robert Downey Jr., there was no way he was going to be able to play that role forever. Right. Like it's just he he's not old, but he is getting too old to be in a superhero movie, you know? Not just too old, too expensive. And too expensive. Yeah. Absolutely. And so they have these properties that they're trying that are untested characters that they've not really been able to introduce before. They are um, untested actors for the most part, untested directors for the most part. They're, they're taking a lot of big gambles. You look at a lot of the most successful solo movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and there are people who were already introduced in the past. Mm-hmm. Black Panther was introduced in Civil War. Yeah. You know, it wasn't just going right out and having Black Panther. Um, And I think the other issue is saturation. You know, you, they are trying a lot of different things. And I admire a lot of the things they're trying. They are making some very, very ambitious swings with what they are doing in Marvel right now. Some of them are misses. It's inevitable. There's always going to be swings and misses. But I think that, the fact that they tried too many things too quickly disillusioned a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I, I think if they had tried a couple things and did a couple more safe things that and, and mixed them together, it would have went a lot better than throwing everything to the wall to see what sticks. So, yeah. for example, you know, you have your safer things like WandaVision, like Loki. Those are the things that have, you know, the characters that you already know, that you already love. And then you have stuff like Miss Marvel, She-Hulk. Um, that are the new characters that you've not seen before, in, at least in film. Uh, and, and I think that they tried to do too much too quickly with that, and, and that kind of bit them in the butt, <laughs> for lack of a better term. Well, and, and a lot of discussion about WandaVision, for example, you mentioned that one. Uh, I, I saw a lot when you get to the last episode, and there's the reveal and there's the, you know, the final conflict and the battle and everything. Wanda's the villain. I mean, she's been torturing these people for months on end and just leaves. And there's, there's, there are no consequences for the villain. And I get it, you know, that's, it's setting up for multiverse of madness but at the same time, then we find out that the people writing Multiverse of Madness didn't watch WandaVision, so they don't even know what the setup was supposed to be. And and that all changed anyway because WandaVision had their reshoots and whatnot. So it's almost like nobody is flying the plane. You know, up until that point, you know, like you said, up to Endgame, you know, it's Kevin Feige's show. And Nia DaCosta has even said, you know, it's, it's, it's Kevin Feige's baby. You know, we're just we're just there to do. And I frequently made the com- the comparison that the Marvel Cinematic Universe is a television series and Feige is the showrunner and you have the individual movies or the different episodes of the of the show. 
And so you have writers and directors that'll come in for maybe one episode or two episodes and they leave. And your showrunner, your your producer, is the guy who stays there and makes sure that it all kind of falls together. But I think looking at that same comparison, for example, yeah. you know, you look at it as a television show with the individual episodes. Let's look at Friends, for example. You know, there was Friends and then they had that spinoff focused on Joey, Joey that yeah. went nowhere. <laughs> yeah, but like nobody really watched it, uh, and, and I think that that's what's happening right now. They're trying to do those spinoffs from the main series, and it's just not working. And I think it's because nobody is really seeing the vision that's coming to it, or the fact that they're able to stand on their own. So, for example, a lot of these Disney Plus projects, something that I've noticed is that the first three or four episodes are them doing their own thing, and then the last two episodes are setting up the next. And uh, it's it's something that I think is also plaguing Star Wars, too. Like, you look at Star Wars and Book of Boba Fett, uh, the first half of the series is awesome. It's this unique kind of Western vision by Robert Rodriguez in the Star Wars universe. And then it becomes Mando. Yeah. Like, Mando 2.5 uh, is what Book of Boba Fett becomes, basically. Right. And so I think, you know, if... Well, and a lot of it's people got to go back. A lot of people were were still waiting for Boba Fett to actually show up in these in these things because the the character that we're getting now is much different from everybody's mm-hmm. expectation based on. I mean, sure, it's ten seconds in The Empire Strikes Back, but this is this is Clint Eastwood. This is the man with no right. name, right? His pale writer is is somebody who comes in. He, he does the job, he, you know, he, he gets his guy, and he leaves. And the, the first episode of The Mandalorian set up so much potential because he comes in, he goes, I can take you in hot, I can take you in cold. And you're like, this show was written for Boba Fett because, and they switched it because Boba Fett's dead, they got to figure out how to bring him back. Yeah, it's just that vibe. And then... After it became the Mandalorian and Grogu show to sell toys, it just, you know, after season two, it just went completely off the rails because Disney sits there and says, yeah, we know Grogu's story is done. He went off with Luke Skywalker, huzzah, hurrah, but we got to bring him back because we got to sell toys. And it was like, no, 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 wait, 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 wait. (laughs) You're compromising your story for marketing. And that's how you got Batman and Robin. And I think that's how we've got what we've got with the MCU right now too, yeah. is that we're we're compromising the overall story to get the next thing. And I think that I mean, obviously, there are factors outside of Disney's control. Like obviously, the whole Jonathan Majors thing that's going on that's sure. kind of ruined the King thing. I don't want to say ruined um, because that's not fair to Jonathan Majors' victims. Um, but like like the whole Jonathan Majors thing meaning that the Kang saga is not going to work out as initially planned. They have to do something else. And if they are trying to sacrifice all of these other individual storytelling elements to set up for something that's not going to come anymore, (laughs) they're just kind of like stalling, you know? So for example, uh, Eternals at the end of Eternals in the post-credit scene, there's the voice cameo from blade and the Blade movie's gone through 20 rewrites at this point. Yeah. And I don't even know if we're ever going to get the Blade movie. 
And so we have this situation where there's an Easter egg teasing something that might not come. And so I think that that's a lot of what's going on there. It's a mess. Yeah, it is. And like I said, a lot of it is not in the control of the people behind it. But I do think that there's a lot of things that are, they, they could be fixed. They could course correct and yeah. make things right. And I think that that's what they're trying to do. Um, I think that tying it back to the box office uh, discussion, uh, I think that Deadpool 3 is going to do really well at the box office this year because I think that that movie is going to be, relatively speaking, a standalone. Yeah, I I think I mean obviously you're going to have the self-referential in jokes of hey I'm in the MCU now, um, stuff like that is going to happen. And all the but cameos, I, all the cameos, everything yeah. like that. But I think generally speaking, we're not going to be seeing that movie build towards anything bigger or build from anything bigger. I don't think you're going to have to have watched 20 Disney Plus shows to understand <laughs> what's happening in Deadpool three. Versus like the Marvels, you had to have seen like at least four or five different Disney Plus shows to really follow the conflict in the Marvels to understand what's going on. Uh, I I don't think that's going to be the case with Deadpool 3. And I do think that that's going to do very well at the box office this year. So do you think, given that we saw her at the New York football game with Sean Levy and Ryan Reynolds... Do you think Taylor Swift is playing Dazzler? I don't think so. Um, I think that Taylor Swift is just friends with Blake Lively. And it's kind of like uh, just the chain reaction of Taylor Swift is friends with Blake Lively. Blake Lively is married to Ryan Reynolds. Ryan right. Reynolds is fan, uh, friends with Sean Levy. Uh, I think that that's about as far as it goes. I don't think it's anything deeper than that. I think reading into it is not necessarily true. Um, I mean, it's been a rumor for a long while. I mean, it's it's been a fan casting and and a lot of people have talked about it. You know, I think fans should be pleasantly surprised if it does happen, not trying to be angry when it doesn't happen because we've seen how that's happened in the past. You know, there were the rumors... Uh, from Multiverse of Madness that Tom Cruise was going to show up as an alternate oh, version yeah, of Iron Man, Iron right? Man. And when it didn't happen, everybody online was like, I didn't get my Tom Cruise as <laughs> Iron Man. Uh, and I, I think that if if we're thinking about it as a, a definite answer because of something that could very well be circumstantial, yeah. that you're just setting yourself up for disappointment if it doesn't happen. And if it does happen, it's not going to be as satisfying as if you just kind of let speculation go. How do you think Madam Webb's going to do? I'm hearing chatter that it's that right now it doesn't look like it's going to perform very well. No, it doesn't look like it's going to perform very well at all. Um, I mean, Morbius didn't do very well at the box office either, <laughs> um, which is actually a movie that I ended up seeing three times in theaters. Oh, no, sorry, two times in theaters. And then the third time I watched it at home. Um, I saw it once to see it. Second time was as a dare. And then I kind of reevaluated it yeah. on the dare to something I actually liked. And then I watched it a third time. Um, but I, I think that Madam Web it is going back to what I kind of mentioned. You have these untested characters, right? For the most part. 
Uh, very few people know who Madam Web is, and I don't think they're doing a good job of marketing the fact that the uh, the three women who are other than Dakota Johnson, the stars of the film, including Sydney Sweeney, are playing Spider Woman. I don't think that they are doing a good job of saying the fact this is a Spider Woman movie. Yeah. If they said this is a Spider Woman movie, it would do a lot better. And I think, for example, another instance of this that I can think of is Birds of Prey. You know, mm-hmm. you had mm-hmm. Birds of Prey come out. People didn't really put together that it was a Harley Quinn film unless if you were a hardcore comic book fan that knew or you paid well, particular attention to the marketing. Except and, when it first came out, it was... It, it, it was it, Birds it was, of Prey was, or the, eman- the fabulous emancipation, emancipation of, of, of one, one Harley, Harley Quinn. Quinn. Yeah, um, they changed But they the changed title. it to Harley Quinn, Birds of Prey. Yeah, And I think that, honestly, that's just testimony to the fact that consumers are ne- not necessarily going to read a title that sounds like a book report. <laughs> um, you're like, it's, it's that you're going to go back to the thing that's more simple of Harley Quinn, Birds of Prey, and it performed better when it was changed to Harley Quinn, Birds of Prey. Of course, that was cut short by the COVID pandemic yeah. that hit a couple weeks later. But there was a little bit of a, a, a reduction in the the, the loss of um, week over week revenue for that film when it retitled itself to Burley, or to Harley Quinn Birds of Prey. And I think that if they had done a better job of marketing Madam Web as a Spider Woman movie, it would be doing a lot better than it's probably going to do. Given that uh, the Dakota Johnson's character that we're seeing in the film is a lot younger than the character as she appears most of the time in the comic books, you've also got a lot of people out there cons- with concerns about fidelity to the source material. And that's that's been a bugaboo for comic book movies for a long time. You know, what Richard Donner used to call verilis- verisimilitude. You know, you can believe a man will fl- you, you you will believe a man can fly when he's doing the Superman movies with Chris Reeve. And nowadays, it seems like the the filmmakers are playing a little fast and loose with that continuity. And we've talked before about the the missed opportunity in, on the marketing side of things, where if I'm do you know I go to see a comic book movie with Thor, and I go to the comic book shop to pick up a Thor comic book, and it's not Thor. It's Jane Foster Thor. Well wait, well, wait a minute. Where's where's Thor? I just went to the movie. I saw Thor, and I'm going into the comic book for, shop for the very first time, and I want to pick up a Thor comic book. And it's a completely different character. Same for Hulk. I go see a Hulk movie. I come in, and it's not Bruce Banner. It's Amadeus Cho. Well, wait, wait, there there was no synergy between the comic book movie and the comic book publisher. And, and right. it, to me, it was a huge missed opportunity. It was like, put a put a spinner rack in the lobby of every theater where there's a, a superhero film and sell comic books. Right. And this is actually something I kind of touched upon um, in, in a recent video essay that I wrote for Phantom Wire. Uh, and it was specifically about how Blade kind of saved Marvel um, back in the 90s when Marvel was about to go into bankruptcy. Yeah, it did. Uh, it, it, it's something that back in the 90s they fractured basically they split up everything 
things went to different people in terms of film adaptation rates. People had different visions. You know, the Blade movie, for example, was completely different than the Blade we saw in the comics. You know, Blade we saw in the comics at the time, at least, was kind of (laughs) wimpy. Like, he was a character that kept getting defeated all the time. Uh, And then they turned him into the Damphir, who is the half vampire. And he was kind of a lot cooler in the movie because that's what they needed to sell the movie. They needed Wesley Snipes to sell the Blade movie. Yeah. And then they changed the comic books to reflect the character that was in the movies because they realized, wow, the character that they created for the movies is a lot cooler than the character we created for the comic books. And so I think that but by the time you did that fraction, you know, you got everything separated out. Mm-hmm. Now that everything's finally coming back together with the, the, you know, the Disney acquisition of Fox bringing X-Men and Fantastic Four back into the fold. And then the uh, all the rights reverting for the ones that weren't being used, like Ghost Rider and Blade and all that stuff. And mm-hmm. Daredevil that they ended up making the Daredevil show for Netflix. And then Netflix ended up getting axed out of the partnership and now they're bringing back daredevil with the same actors i think they're really just struggling to bring together the continuities that they have already and they're trying to tie it all together now and i i think that the first big step for that was um no way home obviously Mm -hmm. um because that was the first big step in saying you know these movies that came out before might not be our canon but they exist and we acknowledge their existence. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think that that's kind of what they need to build towards is more towards kind of tying everything together in a way that it's, it's frankly less confusing for a newcomer because at this point, a newcomer to Marvel has to wade through dozens of movies at this point to understand what's happening in any given new release. Uh, and I think that, it kind of needs to be streamlined a little bit. And I, I think that that's kind of what they're starting to do. What are you anticipating for the DC side of the street? I think that the DC is just going to do a hard reset uh, well, for the yeah. most part. I mean, I, I think that, you know, we've got a couple characters that are transferring over like uh Peace Waller is um, definitely moving over apparently uh, yeah. with Viola Davis still staying in the same role. Um, but I think obviously those are characters that are kind of more on the fringe, you know, I mean, Waller is a very important figure that they could use as the quote, Nick Fury of the DC universe if they wanted to, but it doesn't seem like that's the vision. Um, it, it seems like they're going to keep Peacemaker and uh, Waller kind of on the side doing their own thing that occasionally ties into the, to the main vision of this new DC universe, but doesn't kind of overlap 100%. Yeah. And I think that that's kind of what we're looking for, for DC. Do you think it's going to work? The, 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 the setup that we've got, what, what James Gunn has explained so far with the different projects that have already been announced and what people are taking away from that as, you know, they're, they're making assumptions on his strategy and I've seen, you know, loose continuity connections between the things. I've seen uh, they're making uh, they're making movies that can stand alone for them for each other and not have to worry about this big shared continuity because they're about to sell everything off. I mean, 
lots of different lots of different things uh, being discussed. Do you think that gun and saffron strategy, as as much as we know about it, is going to be successful? Well, I think starting with Superman is the way to go. Uh, obviously, because you know Superman is probably the most popular superhero in the entire world. <laughs> uh, I don't think that there's a more recognizable superhero than Superman. And I think that starting with a more well-known character is the best move. As for some of the, the more obscure characters that yeah. they're looking into, I think it could work. I mean, back in the 2010s, I never would have thought that a Guardians of the Galaxy movie would have worked as well as it did. Right. But it did. And who was the main person behind it? James Gunn. And so I think, you know, if you have the, if you at least put faith in a James Gunn that you, that he knows what he's doing, I think it'll work out maybe better than the current phase of Marvel. Do I think it's going to work out better than the early phases of Marvel? Like where we're building up to infinity war? No. Um, but I, I do think that, this reboot might have a little bit more success than the current phase we're going through in Marvel. What do you anticipate for Dune part two? I anticipate greatness. <laughs> uh, I, I love the first Dune. Um, so I'm very, very excited to see this new one. Uh, I do think it's a little weird that they're putting it out in March. I mean, I obviously know that the the strikes had a lot to do with that in terms of pushing it so that the actors could promote the films. Right. And I think that they're going to be able to mount a very big campaign. Uh, I think that we're going to see a big push at the Super Bowl for Dune. And I think that's going to kick off a marketing campaign that is going to have a ton of momentum. And I will say for as many of the issues I have with Warner Brothers and their business, they are very good at marketing <laughs> As you can tell from Barbie being a massive hit, yeah. from Wonka being a pretty big-sized hit, uh, I think that they're going to be able to market June and make it really successful. Well, and you talk about you talk about the, the business decisions that Warner Brothers has made. I mean, you, you stop and consider, yeah, I know that, that Zaslav has a reputation, and there's a lot of media that's set against him, but uh, considering what he what he's what he entered into at the beginning, you know, the mess that was the AT&T Warner Brothers, mm -hmm. you know, it's kind of, I, I don't know that he really had any, any good options. I mean, right. really, it's <laughs> like, okay, we're just going to have, it's like, okay, so we have a bunch of rose bushes here. To Be sure to connect with us on social and media and subscribe to our channels so you don't miss our next broadcast. Everything was just this is Sci-Fi For Me Radio. And we had, to, we had to cut a massive amount, almost all the way down to the root on this thing. And it had been in, it's been in the yard for a long time. And we didn't think we were going to keep it. We didn't think we were going to save it. And it was just cut everything, cut, 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 because you got to get rid of everything that's diseased. And by the time you get that, you get this little stubby little stump. You're like, oh, crap, is this thing going to survive? And it kind of feels like Zaslav's looking at this, this rose bush with, with all of these black stems on it. It's, okay, I got to cut stuff before it kills the company. And, you know, when he's sitting there thinking... You know, we're in business to make money. Everyone's like, wait, what? I mean, it's almost like it was this novel concept. It's like, well, of course you're in business to make money. The other studios should should learn this lesson too. 
because y'all aren't. I mean, Hollywood is in such a state right now because right. because of decisions that have been made. And, you know, now you've got this this discussion of of Paramount being sold off. And I got to be honest, I was not expecting the Disney Fox deal to go through. So when now you're hearing about uh, Skydance, I guess, is the front runner to try to buy Paramount Global. I, you know, I've I've said from the beginning, you know, last year my bingo card was fill in the blank. This year it's one slot and it says, but of course, because <laughs> it, I mean, of, well, of course, of course well, that's happening. So I, I think the difference between Disney Fox and Skydance Paramount is that Disney and Fox are both massive companies. Yes. They were two of, they were two of the biggest media conglomerates of the world. And I don't think that's so much the case with um, Skydance and Paramount, just like it wasn't really the case with Warner Brothers and Discovery. Like they're both sizable companies, but yeah. they're not the biggest media conglomerates in the world. Right. Um, like, like there was at one point where somebody was like, is Comcast going to buy Warner Brothers Discovery? <laughs> and I'm like, absolutely not. The government's going to shut that down um, because that would just... Yeah. Well, I I figured <laughs> I figured they'd step in with the Disney Fox deal. I, I never would have expected that would have gone through. I, I agree. Uh, I thought it was crazy that, that went through. So I guess you know you never know what's going to happen. But I, I don't think that yeah. this is as much of a concern as something like Disney Fox would have been, or Warner Brothers Comcast, or yeah. anything like that. All right. So wrap it up. Give me your your top five films that you're that you're really looking forward to seeing here in the next few months. What what's on yeah. your list? So my number one movie that I'm actually looking forward to seeing in the next couple of months, I'm seeing tomorrow, and it is Argyle. I am extremely excited for this Matthew Vaughn action movie, uh, starring Henry Cavill and Dua Lipa, among other people. Really excited to see that. Um, I'm really excited to see Dune two. Uh, obviously, because it's Dune. That's going to be yeah. massive. It's going to be awesome. Uh, I'm really excited for a movie that just played at Sundance that I didn't actually get to see, um, which was I Saw the TV Glow, uh, which is like an indie horror film by Jane Schoenbrunn, who was the director behind another indie horror film called We're All Going to the World's Fair a few years ago. Mm, okay. Got great reviews out of Sundance. It's A24. Uh, really enjoyed that. Uh, I'm obviously looking forward to Mickey 17, which is the new Bong Joon-ho film. Didn't uh, that get canceled? No, it got pushed. It got pushed. So it's going to okay, come out in the fall pushed. instead of the March. Okay, gotcha. Uh, and then I'm also looking, well, I actually saw it already, but I do want to give a shout out to Orion in the Dark, uh, which comes out on Netflix this week on Friday. It's an animated movie, uh, to, or sorry, written by Charlie Kaufman who did like Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. It's the new DreamWorks film, Charlie Kaufman. Fantastic. Um, it's, it's like, it is, it is as existential as anything he's written for adults, but in a way that's family friendly. And I love that. That's interesting. That, that, that combination I, I would not have put together. You know? I wouldn't have either, but it works incredibly well <laughs> all right sean bullman it is uh disappointmentmedia.com is uh the main site you can also find sean over on twitter big tuna on film and there is a youtube channel but uh yes. you haven't, haven't done anything done, with it I'm, yeah we haven't done anything in a hot minute because <laughs> right. i i ended up moving 
uh, to a different city from my co-host for my old podcast. So we didn't really get to do, uh, get to keep doing that. All right. So I'm going to stick a hot poker in your eye and tell you, you got to get on this. You, 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 need, <laughs> you need to, you, you need more content. Yes. Yeah, I guess. Is that, is that the word that we use? I hate that word. <laughs> All right, Sean. Thanks very much for being here, sir. I do appreciate it. Good luck with everything. Yeah. And uh, thank you for having me. We will we will share links and such, and we will put all of the links for your stuff in the notes. And when we get back, more discussion of various different things, stuff, and things. Because why not? Um, it's just going to be one of those one of those days. It's a busy week. Stand by. We'll be right back. You're listening to Sci-Fi for Me Radio. You know, this to me is, I think, is the is a highly relevant question here. That's a great question. Nobody's ever asked me that. So. Well, that becomes a huge a, a, a huge question. Oh, that's a good point. Wow. Yeah. You, that's you just you opened a lot there a lot to unpack there i think jason you always do you you get this stuff better than anyone bringing you news and opinion from all over the web sci-fi for me delivering the multiverse since 2009 back live from the bunker jason hunt here along with all of you folks um i have to apologize because apparently my little widget that's supposed to pull in comments from the chat windows wasn't. So I'm sitting here throughout the entire thing and I'm saying, where is everybody? Because I'm looking at a different screen and I put it down here, and I see suddenly I see all this all this stuff, all this conversation in the chat <laughs> on both YouTube and Odyssey. My apologies, folks. I was not ignoring you, um, but the widget the widget wasn't uh, <laughs> it wasn't working. I don't know why. So let me let me see if it's okay. Now it's gonna now it's gonna work. I guess I just had to reload and stuff. I, I'm sorry. Hi, everybody. Welcome. Uh, Death Angel Shadow, uh, breaking news. Hot on the heels of a successful Kickstarter rep reprint, Castle Z... Z what is that? Uh, let me see if I can read this. Castle Zegig. Troll Lord Games has announced they will be publishing more of the Gygax Estate Ventures. Well, that's uh, that's good news. So uh, I do see I do see Road Vagabond Life over there. He says there should be a film critic critic channel. I watched Chris Stuckman until he made a movie, then refused to criticize any movie. That kind of thing happens. Well, see, and that's one of the things where I've I've run into that here, where um, you know you sit there and you talk about the the you know this goes all the way back to Gamergate. You have the media, the journalists, what cover this stuff. And I know that we're kind of the alt tech and the rules are a little bit different nowadays than they would be for like your typical you, traditional journalism. But I have found it difficult uh, to consider backing any kind of a crowdfund 
campaign, for example, uh, whether it's Indiegogo or Kickstarter or Fund My Comic or wherever, I have found it a challenge. I can't get I can't get past if I'm going to cover this in any kind of a journalistic capacity, whether I'm reporting news on it or if I'm commentating on behavior surrounding it or if I'm doing a review or if I'm doing an interview of, of one of the creative people that are involved in it, I, I feel like, and this is just me, I lean toward it being a conflict of interest because we saw what happened with Gamergate. You had people that had a financial interest in a project reporting on the project without disclosing that, that financial uh, involvement. And I get it. If I were to sit there and say, <coughs> I'm reviewing this book, but I also was a backer of the book, that does give me a little bit of cover. But it also, it also I think, compromises my, my objectivity that's, you know, I, I, can't, I, can't, I, I can't fairly review something if I've got skin in the game. So I've been hesitant to put money into whatever books that are out there. And I know I've probably missed a lot that's, uh, you know, a lot of really good stuff. But, you know, it's like, well, yes, that's the way it goes. That's, that's how things are. So I don't know. It's just, it's just me. It's just me. Uh, news item we didn't get to uh, prior to the uh, the interview hour. We've got a new. We got some casting news for a new project. This is Variety reporting. Aaron Bernard, Haley Atwell, Jack Loden, uh, join Duncan Jones science fiction movie Rogue Trooper. Uh, Duncan Jones, of course, uh, Moon. Uh, he also did a video game movie here not too not too long ago that didn't didn't do very well. Uh, he's David Bowie's son. <coughs> uh, from the article, Einar and Bernard, Haley Atwell, Jack Loden lead the cast of science fiction movie Rogue Trooper, written and directed by Duncan Jones, whose credits include Moon, Source Code, Warcraft, and Mute. The animated film, which is being created with Epic's 3D tool Unreal Engine 5, was adapted by Jones from the comic book published by 2000 A.D., Home to Judge Dread, Halo Jones, and Slain. Rogue Trooper, produced by Rebellion and Liberty Films, has wrapped principal photography at Rebellion Film Studios in the UK. The film is set to be finished next year. Bernard stars as the... Well, it's, it may, if he's UK, it's probably Barnard. Stars as the eponymous... Eponymous... Rogue Trooper, cast alongside him are Atwell, uh, Loden, Daryl McCormick, and Reese Shursmith. Others in the cast, Jermaine Clement, uh, Matt Berry, Diane Morgan, Alice Lowe, Asa Butterfield, Sean Bean. I wonder if he will survive. Rogue Trooper tells the story of 19, a genetic infantryman who finds himself the sole survivor of an invasion force, desperate to track down the traitor who sold him and his comrades out. The super soldier is accompanied by three killed-in-action squad mates whose personalities have been stored in his gun, helmet, and rucksack. The Rogue Trooper comic book was created by artist Dave Gibbons. 
I've interviewed Dave Gibbons. Ad writer uh, Gary Finley Day. So that's on its way. I wonder, I wonder where uh, where Haley Atwell's personality has been stored. If she's the gun, the helmet, or the rucksack. Anyway, all right. So there is that. Um, really not very much else, anything else. Oh, uh, William Shatner has, has posted a response. Apparently somebody has decided over in the UK, over the EU, that phrases like where no man has gone before should be um, not included anymore. They should be verboten. And William Shatner has a thought or two about it. He says, presentism at work yet again. Why start at Trek, he says. Isn't it better to start at the beginning and redo foundational materials such as the Magna Carta, religious writings, works of Shakespeare before worrying about a silly TV show opening that reflects social commentary of the time? If people are offended by six seconds of dialogue recorded in 1966 without a modicum of understanding of the social issues at the time, there's bigger issues that they need to deal with first, like educating themselves. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, I, I would say, uh, I would say. Um, okay, so Death Angel Shadow has some thoughts, but he's got uh, too many words for YouTube, so it's posted over on the Discord. So go, uh, so go join the Discord and see what it is that Death Angel Shadow says. Um, so you've got this. Apparently, this is a thing. This is the EU. We don't like this. Um, EU chiefs want to ban gendered phrases such as the classic Star Trek line to boldly go where no man has gone before. Uh, the bureaucrats say no man should be replaced by no one. Here and 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 uh, Shatner posts a photograph of the Magna Carta. Um, memo to the EU. There's this thing called Star Trek: The Next Generation that did exactly that. There's this movie called Star Trek VI: The Undiscovered Country that actually made the change at the end of the movie? I Yes, I know. No one better replace it. <laughs> Mankind includes both men and women. Yeah, I mean, Neil Armstrong. One small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. Mankind is not men. I mean... Men folk, I mean, you could say men folk, and you know you're talking about the men, but mankind is kind of a big wraparound bucket that you put everybody in, right? Humanity? I mean, humanity? Man's right there in the middle of human. Humanity, man. Oh, that's that's going to be problematic too, I guess. It just, people are, people are silly. People are silly. All right. Uh, all right. Let's do this. I'm going to go ahead and throw the link in there just just so people can can have it. If anybody wants to wants to call in, 
Uh, you can jump in here for the last uh, 20 or 30 minutes. It looks like we're buffering. I don't know why. Uh, I've got a green light over on YouTube. It says excellent condition, but it only looks like there's like three people here. So, I mean, where is everybody? I don't know. Some something else must be going on. Are you? I guess you're all. I guess you're all catching up on the Taylor Swift news. Um, maybe. I don't know. If if you're not following Mike Benz, uh, over on Twitter, uh, Twixer, Mike Benz, B E N Z. He's the founder of the. He's he's the director of the Foundation for Freedom Online, and uh, he has had some very interesting material that he's put out. Some information on how. Uh, the CIA and the State Department is very heavily invested in entertainers uh, and their and their role in color revolutions overseas. And my question is, why couldn't they do it here? They could be doing it here. They might be doing it here. At the very least, I I have said this before. The Taylor Swift, Travis Kelsey thing feels manufactured to me. It feels like the same kind of thing that the Hollywood studios used to do back in the 30s and 40s when they would put certain actors together for a while. And, you know, the social... The socialites, the social, the, the society pages, you know, page three, his Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall out on the town. All of that stuff was manufactured. All of that stuff was PR. All of it was marketing. All of it was, okay, you're going to date this person for six months, and then you're going to break up because we've got a movie to sell. And that's what this feels like. I mean, I've seen photographs with her picture on it on all sorts of different magazine covers. And like I said at the beginning of the show, there's this this brand value that she's brought to the NFL and the Kansas City Chiefs on the order of some $330 million. There's surveys where people are sitting there saying, you know, one, one out of five young people that have been surveyed has said that they'd likely vote for whichever candidate she endorses. I mean, this is this is planned. I am almost certain of it. I have no proof. I don't have any any source, any any little I don't have any little bird in my ear telling me one thing or the other on this, but I have I have no doubt in my mind that this whole thing is manufactured. It's my opinion, sure. It's just me spitballing. But I just, you know, it's, I just got a feeling. I just got a feeling. I was just saying. All right, I did mention at the top of the show <clears throat> that we have a very busy week this week. Let me let me give you let me give you a little bit of an idea of of what we're doing here because uh, this is uh, this is something. That uh, I was, I was, I'm, I'm kind of happy that we're doing, uh, but it also kind of feels like, oh crap, we're we're very busy this week. Uh, so uh, we had we had Sean Bowman here today. Tomorrow on the program, Chris Weatherman will be here. He is the host of the Angry American Podcast. 
He's got a new post-dystopian survivalist novel that's out, part of his series. I think he's got 12 books out in this series, so he's, we're going to be talking to him about the new one. Uh, he's also got a podcast. And then Marissa Wolf on Wednesday, she has her debut novel coming from Bayon Books next week uh, on Tuesday. Uh, I think it's called Enemy Within. And then on Thursday, Aaron Ryan will be here to talk about his new book, uh, The Dissidents. So all of that's going on. Friday right now we have Open Line Friday planned, but I'm hoping... Uh, that I can get uh, some stuff going on uh, for a discussion on AI. I'm still waiting to hear back from people uh, to see about doing that because I want to go more in-depth than just an hour will give us on that, given all of the different things that are going on with AI. Uh, I want to go a little bit longer with that discussion. So if it doesn't happen on Friday, it will happen soon, uh, and and we'll we'll get that going. Now, uh, also, next week, I, I, the, the calendar is filling up. The calendar is filling up. I'm getting dates in February and March. I'm talking to people about stuff that's coming out in May. Uh, we're, st we're still going on this thing. So tell people about it. Share the links with people. And, and the other thing, too, and I haven't mentioned this since we came back, and I should have. I've been remiss, and I apologize. But the email address that we have is there for your feedback and, and topic suggestions. So if you have uh, guests that you would like to see us try to invite... Hey, it'd be really great if you could get X and so person on. Uh, we did send an invitation out to Dakota Johnson's representatives to talk about Madam Webb. They politely declined. Uh, I have sent an invitation out to Justine Bateman for the AI discussion because she's been very vocal, very, very active on social media with her resistance to the idea of AI and, and the deal that the Screen Actors Guild got. Uh, but I want to hear from you. What uh, what should we do in terms of guests? Who should we invite? Uh, I mean, we've had a lot of authors that have come through here. We've had a couple of comic book creators. I mean, Paul DeGarabedian's a regular, and I imagine we'll have Judah Engelmeyer in here once or twice. Cameron will probably be here. Culture Casino will probably through, be through here uh, on the regular. RJ Carter, uh, all of that. But we, who 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 is who is on the agenda? Send us an email. Leave us a comment. Leave us a, a suggestion on those whom we should invite. Death Angel Shadow joins us. Well, good afternoon, sir. Welcome. How are you doing? Well, how are you doing today, Jason? I'm I'm doing okay for having only gotten four hours of sleep. Yeah, I kind of know that feeling. <laughs> I, I've been getting really weird sleep lately. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe, I, it's, maybe it's my age. I don't know. And I've been having some of the weirdest dreams, and I, I couldn't even begin to tell you where they're coming from. It's very strange. Last night, uh, there were people from high school that I haven't thought about since high school, and I'm like, what are they doing here? <laughs> wow. Strange. Yeah, it was weird. Yeah, that's, so. that's, that's uh, a little bit. Yeah. So anyway, what's yeah. up, sir? I don't know. I, I, I was uh, <clears throat> sorry for my tardiness. I, you know, I was, uh, I try to support people who don't hate me. <laughs> what? <laughs> what is 
Well, when it comes to the the, the tabletop role playing game uh, uh, community, yeah, you know, there's there's a uh, there's a lot of uh, a lot of the entities that be um, just you know, oh, well, if you don't believe what they believe, then they're kind of oh, well, we don't want you, we don't right. need you anymore, yeah, and so. <clears throat> So you know, I've been trying to support some some of those uh, folks that are are not of the uh, the mindset that, hey, just because you and I don't agree, <laughs> or and, and in some cases some of us do agree. Um, so I've been trying to support some of them, and um, <clears throat> one of the uh, the vendors that's out there has uh, been that's uh, been fairly neutral on everything. I mean. They've they've actually made it a point to uh, to say, hey, politics doesn't belong in tabletop role playing game, at least not real world politics. Yeah. You know. Um, so uh, Troll Lord Games, I have to give a big shout out to them. They they're they're really good. Um, they've been working with the Gygax Estate, so um, I've been I've jumped on uh, the uh, <clears throat> a couple of their Kickstarters or back. Um, whatever it is, back your kits or whatever. I, th I think it was a Kickstarter that they did um, to reprint uh, Castle uh, Zygag is the way that I've heard it pronounced. Yeah, so, which makes sense because it's kind of a play on Gygax. It, it, yeah, basically it's Gygax backwards. Yeah. <laughs> so, but uh, apparently um, the uh, – the estate of Gary Gygax was, uh, you know, the state of Wisconsin, I think it is, um, was fairly um, pleased with with the results of the Castle Zygag uh, reprint. And they said, yeah, go ahead. And we're going to go ahead and let you do some other stuff. So that's kind of the breaking news that I was uh, touting out there. I'm like, oh, this is kind of cool. Um, from what I understand, there may be a, a, an actual board game involved in that too so oh. yeah so it's not just not just your regular uh you know i hate to use the term but D D esque stuff uh so that's kind of cool um it'll be interesting to see is that dog barking uh -oh. on your end yes okay All right. <laughs> it's my neighbor's <laughs> dog sorry say, wait a minute another dog you can hear that. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Usually this that's a, you know, I'm like, I'll be talking to people and I'll be like, there's a train coming by and they're like, do you hear the train? Because it's like deafening to me. And they're like, nope, I don't hear a thing. <laughs> you you probably have your, your sound, sound buffering switch thing on and the dog is just right on the cusp. Yeah, uh, of stuff. So it's probably within the range of the vocal or the, yeah. the you know, the frequency range where it'll do it. But at uh, any rate, <clears throat> yeah, I've got my wireless headset on, and I'm kind of, you know, not able to stand still. But um, I did catch uh, <clears throat> Culture last night. That was kind of fun. Um, I didn't see you on there. You weren't on. No, I had I had to work last night. I had stagehand work that kept me out. Um, we were we were pulling a show apart down at the Performing Arts Center. Uh, down yeah. in Kansas City. So I, my call time, I had to, st my start time was 10 p.m. And we didn't get out of there until close to 2. 
uh, 2 nah. a.m. So, you know, just it's you're you're tearing apart all of the flats and the deck and decor for the the uh, a theatrical a musical theatrical production. And, wait, you, know, wait, stage, you, miss, you miss 70s. 70s has discovered green screens now. So, oh, uh, <laughs> I'll have to go back and look. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, is, is he is uh, he far enough from the green screen that it doesn't reflect on his head? It did not reflect on his head. Okay, all right. But what he had <laughs> behind him is what's the most important thing. Oh, okay. Because yeah, yeah, you know that thing that everybody complains about when culture is uh Oh, he did getting... not. He did. Oh <laughs> no, he didn't. He had it running in a loop. <laughs> oh. Running it running behind him. Oh. <laughs> so God bless his soul. <laughs> I... Well, that's not how we say it in the South. <laughs> Well, bless your heart. I mean, yeah, you know, right? I, you know, I, I'm in oh, Tennessee. What I'll have I to say? check. I'll have to look at that. Oh, that's go, that's a scary. Go check thought. it out. It's it, it it was like really, and I, then of course, you know, culture had to play it at the end. Oh, so. of course he did. Yeah. So, <clears throat> but uh, but at any rate, no that that was that was always fun. It's always fun checking into culture's uh, culture's late night. Uh, uh, streams. Uh, <clears throat> if you say so. <laughs> I, well, you know, you know, you never know what you're going to get. It's kind of a that is roll true. Of the dice. That is true. It is. It so. is a roll of the dice. Not so much here. You kind of, you kind of know what to expect when you're here. So. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Except yeah. in this third well, hour. I, do what? As, except in this third hour, because it, it any anybody could come in and say anything. Well, maybe. Well, not yeah, not yeah. really, but you know, I'm actually pretty tame. I I think I'm tame. <laughs> you are you are you do behave yourself very well. Yes. Okay. Well, I appreciate that. Um, it's it's funny too because you know I I get on I get on a number of these streams and, and it's funny because my my kid was here a few weeks ago yeah. and he caught me on. Uh, he caught me on on one of Comics Division streams, ah. and they they he and he and Mindy were watching it on the big the big TV, and she said his jaw just about hit the floor because really? of everything that was being said in these in this show, because you know most mm -hmm. of most of Comics Division streams are not necessarily pg-13 and uh he was very surprised that i was on a show where there was so little restraint let's say uh mm -hmm. and he was like um i don't ever want to hear anything from you again about the way i talk <laughs> i was like no 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 that's not how that works because well you know, i mean comics is a great guy i love is, yeah it, it, i always but have Ian... a good time in those in those shows so yeah yeah, I, you know, and, and, and they're, you know, they're all great guys. Um, I uh, uh, that that's one of the reasons I watch them. I mean, you know, I, you know, I, I you know, we're all, we we all tend to uh, even 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 if we don't necessarily agree, we we all tend to kind of uh, uh, congeal, I guess, yeah. around that 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 central you know, concept and, and, and 
some of the things that they say. You know, basically, you know, what we're fighting for is. Well, it's not it's not so much that is is certain certain uh, more colorful metaphors, shall we say, mm-hmm. uh, that really kind of surprised my kid to hear that I, uh, that I'm sitting right there in the middle of all of this. Uh, How old is he? He's twenty. He he just turned twenty two. Okay, so he's a little bit younger than my stepson. Yeah, um, <laughs> and he not and I, too much. Yeah, but he and I have had these conversations about language. And he, I, I, it's it's funny because you know culture will talk about how he restrains himself during certain shows and and not necessarily very much in others. And my my thought is, if you don't talk that way normally, it's easier right. to avoid talking that way. You know, when you're sitting in the middle of people who talk that way. So right. you know, I was like, you know, it's just it's just easier. I don't I don't have to I don't have to mind my p's and q's because i do that anyway. don't normally you, you know, don't, don't normally deviate off yeah, the script yeah. yeah so yeah well you know and and i and, and to be clear i'm not calling them out for for any any particular mode of behavior i'm just saying you know, sure. for me it's it's just a lot easier to to not engage that way so. don't and, and i have to do that too because you know i'm a you know, you and I have had many discussions, and you know I'm a ham radio operator, and yeah. so um, one of the things I have to do when I'm, you know, transmitting—I can't call it broadcasting because technically, you know, legally, I'm not allowed to quote unquote broadcast right. as a ham. Um, but I am—I do do—I am allowed to transmit, and one of the things that they generally say is, you know try and keep it of a nature that's because you never know who you're talking to you know i could be talking to somebody that's in a communist country where you know they're not allowed to discuss certain topics or whatever and if it was to ever come out that they were talking to somebody about a particular thing literally it could be their life on the line you know right so that's one of the reasons why, you know, as a general rule, when we're talking, especially internationally, um, certain subjects just kind of don't come up, um, you know, by design. And uh, likewise, um, certain language never comes up because uh, it's not allowed and or, 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 you know, there's never been a legal challenge, I don't think. Um, that I'm aware of, but uh, you know, people try and try and keep themselves uh, guarded uh, yeah. when it comes to specific language, and and as a general rule, because you know you never know who's listening, right? Right. Anybody, and you know, it could be a 12 year old, or could be a, you know a, you know a hundred a 98 year old, you know, <laughs> so. You know, you you try and keep your you know your language, uh, curt and 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 generally um, amenable to 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 the popul populace at, at large. So, but uh, but yeah, no, you know, I you know, and trust me, I <laughs> my wife was uh, is the daughter of a sailor, so. Uh, <laughs> I get on. I used to get on her case when when my my stepson was younger. Yeah, I was the one who would always like watch your language, watch your language. Right. 
So well, yeah, because you don't want the kids picking up bad ha- bad habits. You don't want them right. to be you know in a in a in a position where at some point they are required to be polite and they don't know how. I mean that can <clears throat> generate some awkwardness. Oh yeah, no. So he he actually got in trouble one time. Um, uh, he was in sixth grade, I think it was, and an eighth grader decided to pick on him. Oh. And uh, grabbed them from behind in the men's room to, you know, try and rough them up or whatever. And he uh, slammed his uh, his head. He basically headbutted the guy in, uh, that was picking him, from, picking him up from behind uh, in in his nose. <laughs> Which, of course, you know what that's going to do. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, <clears throat> Then he apparently used uh, a bunch of language <laughs> that when the principal called and and we had to go meet with, with them, um, <laughs> the principal said, yeah, so this is what was heard from your son. Now, now mind you, <laughs> we absolutely um, defended him to the max, and in fact, we actually – Instead of punishing him, we rewarded him for defending himself. Sure. Um, because like he was, I'm, I'm not kidding. He was like the small kid. I had to protect him. First I, concert I took him to. I was, I was the small kid once. Right. Yeah. I, I've been there. Let me, but, let, let me get ahead. your, uh, let me get your reaction to this here real quick. Cause I just, this just popped up in the feed. Um, Dolly Parton. Mm-hmm. Is in the news. Oh, talking about the revival of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Really? Now, let me go through this because one, we don't necessarily need a revival of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. If you want to right. do a sequel, I mean, Sarah Michelle Geller is quoted in this article as well, and she's basically saying, you know, been there, done that, show's over. The way we left it, you could continue that story with anybody that has the power. It doesn't necessarily need to be a reboot of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Mm -hmm. especially given, you know, Joss Whedon's situation and whatever came up out of that. But Mm -hmm. most people probably don't know that Dolly Parton was a producer on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I did not know that. That's that's um I and and I'll tell you, um myself and several of my friends, we got into Buffy by way of Angel. Yeah. So we didn't go in the Buffy route and then we got into Angel. No, we went in You went through the spinoff. Oh, hey, Angel's cool and then we're like, Oh, there's this whole backstory and it's Buffy and Yeah. And so yeah, and I did not know that that Dolly had any. Of course, Dolly, you know, Dolly's like a national treasure around here. So yeah. So Business Insider doing an interview with her uh, that was posted on January twenty fourth. They asked her about the Buffy revival, and she says they're still working on that. They're thinking about bringing it back and revamping it. Pardon the pun. Mm. Um. But apparently, for those who don't know, uh, Dolly Parton has a production company called Sand Dollar Productions. Hmm. And it it was a production company that was involved in 
Buffy the, the Vampire original. Slayer, the original series. Yeah. Uh, I don't think she was involved in the first movie with Christy Swanson, which is still a gem. Right. If you haven't yeah. seen that movie, you need to watch that movie because it's a completely different kind of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, Paul Rubens is in it. Uh, uh, Christopher Walken's in it. Uh, I, I think uh, uh, was it Luke Perry or Jason Priestley. Uh, uh, Luke Perry's in it. Now. Yeah, yeah, I think Luke Perry's in it. But Christy Swanson plays Buffy. Donald Sutherland is in it. Yeah, uh, I mean you got some star power in there, and it was it was Joss Whedon's first time to tell the story, was, and it didn't Suther- quite. Suther- it wasn't as Suther- successful as it, as they wanted it to be. So I was gonna say Sutherland. Did he play the Watcher? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's so, the one that found her and said, "You're the Vampire Slayer," and she's like, "I'm and, a what?" And and Giles, the, 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 I can't remember the actor that played Giles, but he he was. You know, I mean, the series was was different. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the series was completely different from the first movie. Well, the only movie. The The movie that came before the series was not connected to the series, but it's the same character. Right, yeah. right, right. And, and and the thing is, is that both were great. Oh, yeah, I, I enjoyed the film. I, I, it's, I, I'm not even going to say it's a guilty pleasure. I liked the film. I thought it was fun. Sure. Yeah, no, and, I did too. I, and Paul I Rubens, I'm not going to give it away, but Paul Rubens has a moment that is classic Paul Rubens. And it is so fun <laughs> because of what he does. I don't know. You've seen it, yes? Yeah, it's you've been a while, but yeah. yes. All right, so toward the toward the end of the movie, Paul Rubens has a scene. And uh, he he does he he does as much as he can with with what he's got in that scene, and it's a lot of fun to watch. So, I highly recommend go watch the original Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I gotta Maybe. check. I don't even know if uh, Anthony Stewart Head is uh, played Giles. I don't even know if that movie is on a streaming service or not anywhere. I don't. Um, yeah. I have to find out. I, it it I, I don't even know who made that. Uh, let me look, cause now I'm now I'm curious because I, say I gotta make I gotta make like uh I gotta make Mindy watch it, cause I don't think she's seen the original movie. She's never seen the original. I don't wow. know. I don't know. Um, I have to ask her. Nineteen ninety two. Uh, so, ouch. <laughs> Mindy would have been thirteen years old. God. Really? Oh my God! Yeah, you make feel, I, me feel old. I I know, right? Um, oh Lord! All right, let's see. Production companies. Uh, yeah, Chrissy Swanson, Donald Sutherland, Luke Perry. Yeah, Luke Hillary Perry. Swank. There you go. Oh, I forgot David Hillary Swank Arquette. was in it. Paul Rubens, he played uh, Emmeline. Yeah, he's the he's the uh, the main henchman. For the for um for Chris for oh it's not not Christopher Walken it's Rutger Hauer playing Lothos mm-hmm. the bad guy uh, and Paul Rubens is his uh, henchman uh, it's 20th Century Fox so there we go well so it's a Disney movie now <laughs> may, am I right 
Uh, you know, that's a good question. Would it be on Disney Plus? <sighs> that's a good question. Um, I mean, uh, they they acquired they they acquired the rights. Yeah, they've to all got the... they've got Fox, so I'd have yeah. to. Huh? Oh, now I'm now I'm curious. Now I'm curious. Uh, Road Vagabond Life says my second favorite line in a movie ever was "Kill him." Kill him a lot from Paul Rubens in that movie. <laughs> I'll have to see if it's yeah. on Disney Plus. I'm I'm curious now to to find it and see. So, oh, I, you know I want to go see it again now too. It's fun. Mm-hmm. It's a fun movie, and you know whatever whatever you may think now currently about uh, Joss Whedon and his circumstances and and where things are now. Uh, also consider a couple of of. Things, things. What to think about is, uh, and as I as I remind people when we close out the show every 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 day, the media lies to you, and what we get in the media reportage of certain particular things may not always necessarily be what actually is a thing. And I'm not saying that to defend right. Joss Whedon in particular. All I'm saying is, as we've seen from, like, say, the Johnny Depp trial, for example, uh, mm-hmm. or things what are going on with Jonathan Majors, or, or anything in the media, consider your source, vet your sources, you know, look at different tellings of those stories, and if it smells hinky, then it may be a little hinky. That's all I'm saying. Uh, it, wow. It, it doesn't always... CNC, CNC Music Factory... It's part of the soundtrack. Yeah, for that, it's a it's wow. a it's de- it's most definitely a '90s film. <laughs> oh yeah, early '90s too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. '92. Yeah. I would have been. I was. I was 22. Um, so I was in college. Ozzy, uh, there's an Ozzy song in there. Uh-huh. Oh wow, uh-huh. Ozzy was Zach Wild. Yeah, I remember that era. Yeah. Oh yeah. wow, that's that's like. Yeah, this is this it's, is definitely the early nineties. It's a fun movie. It's a fun movie. <laughs> you you know you know it's funny as um you said you, you mentioned uh like, you know, regardless of what you think of you know um but I saw something just like yesterday or the day before about a band which I'm I really wasn't aware of cuz I don't know why. I just but a band called Paris Oh yeah. Oh no. And um there was one of those Me Too allegations made against one of the members of the band uh three and a half years ago. Mm, yeah. And the band immediately kicked him out of the band. Oh right. And I I think I remember hearing he, about this. He like within the past week or two just settled with the ac- uh, with the accuser um, who made false allegations and and she swore to she signed the paper that said yes yeah, she made all this stuff up and you know that that brings into mind you know the whole you, you know it, it it makes you it makes you wonder because if somebody says uh, makes an allegation okay well you know you should always believe the blah 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 right yeah. always believe the victim but what happens when there's a lot of these alleged victims and they're just in it 
for the money and they didn't actually what whatever they alleged happened didn't happen and it comes out but you know in the past three and a half years this guy well first of all he got kicked out of a band that was just apparently coming up on on the crest of their popularity they had literally just dropped an album three days before yeah. this, this whole thing came out he got kicked out of a band he had to defend himself he was you know you know scarlet letter boom three three and a half years and finally he's now free of that well it's not like he can't join the band again because no he's got to completely start over from scratch right yeah so, so you know what happens what happens to people who make false allegations like that you know so you, yeah. you know you've got that whole and i'm not saying that that's what happened with joss whedon I'm, i i don't i don't want to say but the problem is is that that seems to be running rampant in the, everything in 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 all culture. Yeah. At this point, you know, it's 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 like, okay, well, you don't want to not believe somebody who says something happened, but also, if you go one hundred percent and believe it, and then what happens when it comes out that that was all just a bunch of malarkey? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. and 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 that person's life was literally ruined. Yeah, and or, and oh, oops, and that's all you get. Yeah, just slap on the wrist, and mm-hmm. and it's it it can be devastating to deal with a with the kind of fallout that you get from a from a false accusation. And again, right. I'm, not, I'm not saying that Whedon was falsely accused, uh, or or any. No, you know, no, any, no, me, any, me, you know, me neither. Right? You know, I, I just, I'm not. Yeah, that whole no movement. Idea. That whole movement just got weaponized really quickly, and I I think we're still. Uh, feeling the consequences of it. But all that having been said, take everything that the media tells you, not even not even just about this, take everything that the media tells you with a grain of salt. Right. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, and, and people people in general need to just realize that. Don't, don't necessarily believe everything that you just hear just because it came from a quote-unquote trusted source. That doesn't mean that it's true. Yeah. You know? Yep. All right. That's going to do it for us. We're going to go ahead and wrap up for today. Uh, reminder that tomorrow on the program, let me get here, we are going to have Mr. Chris Weatherman. He is the host of the Angry American Podcast. He is a survivalist. He is a prepper. And we will probably be talking a little bit about that along with his new book that's part of his survivalist series of post-apocalyptic survivalist fiction. Uh, so that is tomorrow on the program. And then uh, coming up on Wednesday, Marissa Wolf will be here talking about her debut novel over at Bay and Books. And then on Thursday, Aaron Ryan will be here talking about The Dissonance, which is the first book in his series that's coming out. And uh, I'm not sure what Friday is going to look like yet, but uh, we will be here on Friday as well. Uh, Lord Wellen and the Creek Don't Rise. Here's all of our socials, all the places where you can find us online. Connect with us uh, any place where you just figure, you know, hey, this is social media. I'll be social with these people. Discord. 
as well as everything else probably too much but you know that's that's where it is so uh that's going to do it for us today folks thanks very much for being here remember the politicians hate you the media lies to you but god has a plan for you and there are four lights this has been a presentation of Sci-Fi For Me Radio, copyright 2024, by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media. You're listening to Sci-Fi For Me Radio.